Good morning, folks. Got my cuppa, 10 a.m. We're just after here on the sunny Gold Coast. Not so sunny today. I'm kind of happy about that. I like a, a rainy day. Ah. Big shout out to ET Guitars that sent me a whole bunch of cleaning products, which I'm going to be giving away real soon. Chicken Picks, my choice of pick. I've got a whole bunch of them right here. Love them. Been using the same one for about two years. Haven't worn through it. And Summer Cable. Love those guys. They really look after me. Enough of my chit chat. There's somebody lurking around outside. Ring the buzzer, mate. Ring the buzzer. Where's my doorbell? Who's that? Oh, it's Mr. Frank Falbo. Hey, Frank. How you doing? <laughs> oh, look at that. Applause even. <laughs> Joining me from sunny California, I believe, yeah? It is, yeah. Yeah? I, I just said I've got a bit of a gloomy day outside here. How's it looking in your part of the world? Uh, it's fine. Where I'm in Ventura, California, it's usually in the 70s and the sun's out. What are you going to do? 70s, man. That's that's you US guys with your crazy measurements. Uh, yeah, I don't do metric temperatures. <laughs> <laughs> you guys are stubborn in that regard, hey? I, <laughs> Probably, I, yeah. Yeah, it gets me. Like, I try to work out things. Yeah, 70. Man, that's like almost boiling point here. Frank, yeah. you were the first guy I had on for a live stream. Uh, and I must thank yes, you for sure. that because that was very much, oh my God, oh, I'm alive. What do I do? It was you, you and Remco from <laughs> Apollo yeah. Music Parts. So yeah. I must thank Remco for uh, setting up the connection there. Mm -hmm. uh, I haven't gone back and watched that because I, as I said to you off air, if I was to watch myself, I would have given up a long time ago. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you're fine. It was yeah, fine. Yeah. Yeah. Take my word for it. Frank, I'm going to start with the one question I ask everybody. And that is, okay. I may have asked you this in the first one. I, I, I really can't remember. You may have. Yeah. I don't know. You haven't seen it, so you're not going to know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I want to know, what started the love affair with the electric guitar for you, mate? Um, probably, you know, it's weird to say Elvis because it makes me sound a little older than I am. But um, it was Elvis, but, because, but by the time I was like a little kid, he was, you know, already old and dying. Um, but... Uh, we're talking like five or six or seven, right? Yep. And I thought that was cool and uh, started playing acoustic when I was eight. Um, I learned from a, a, a folk musician, folk teacher, um, who actually coincidentally just happened to be also be Muriel Anderson's first guitar teacher back in the day. Um, so I learned a bit of finger style and dexterity from that. But by the time I was like 11 or 12, I was already on the electric and wanted to play rock and roll and stuff like that. I, I did the entire time, you know. Um, so, yeah, I started on electric, kind of taught myself the electric side of things. Yeah. Um, I, but, yeah, I had the, the beginner lessons were, were on the acoustic. Man, it's funny you bring up Elvis being a, a big influence. Uh good friend of mine is a, a chap named uh, Louis Shelton. Not sure if that name rings a bell. He was part of the, the, the whole Wrecking Crew. Um, yeah scene and he just lives around the corner from me here and uh he actually had elvis come to his school and perform before he was a big name and they were just like oh my god how's this guy uh yeah. which is just that would just be mind-blowing yeah yeah but that that's uh that's led you down quite a path uh over the years you've um mm -hmm. become quite the designer you've got your own guitar company you do a lot of teching for some pretty big names so Sure. Some of the things you've helped in designing, I, I realize you're on the R&D team of Fishman Fluence pickups. They're very popular at the moment. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Now that's, that's been great. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. How long ago did the um, the concept for those come about? Um, the, and the aerospace company came up with the idea of those layered PCBs, and they'll use them like in microwave, like antennas and stuff in, that's in satellites. And and the guy who invented it um, also happened to play guitar, and so he brought me the technology and showed it to me. They had made a, a functioning pickup out of it that just made made sound, and they basically said, you know we know this is something, but we don't know what to do with it, you know, nor would they want to as an aerospace company. They're not interested in doing that, but, um, but their, their, uh, their management was all for pursuing other avenues, you know, of developing the use of this technology. So um, they actually brought it to me while I was still at, as a vice president of product development at Seymour Duncan and Seymour Duncan kicked the idea around and then did not do anything with it. Um, and so I knew what it, could, I knew its potential, um, and I was already, then I left Seymour Duncan, and so the two things timed out, you know, perfectly, where it was kind of time for me to move on anyway, start my guitar company, go to work for Fishman, develop the Fluence technology over at Fishman, and so that became sort of my two-pronged approach once I left Duncan, was to develop Fluence over at Fishman and then start making uh, my guitars. Awesome, awesome. So that means you're very um, tech-savvy. How did uh, how did you learn all the, the tech side of things? Man, I started when I was, you know, 11, 12, 13, just playing electric. You know, I was already taking my guitars apart. So that was kind of, you know, that's a cliched story for a lot of people um, for good reason. But, you know, taking apart clock radios, fixing things, you know, trying, you know, that type of stuff. I don't have the formal education, so I couldn't go get a job at a, at a, a Digitech as an electrical engineer. Um, because I don't have the electrical engineering degree, but I can work with engineers to come up with a lot of solutions. And, you know, sometimes because I think outside the box and I don't have the education, um, I might suggest something. I was just talking to a guy who's in school uh, right now and just telling him how there was, you know, there was one circuit where uh, with bucket brigades and clocks and things like that. And, you know, because of all the parts drifting and part tolerances on a stereo uh, circuit, it was like you turn the knobs and, and they would drift a little bit from one another. And, you know, the engineers, they didn't have a solution for that. To them, it was just, well, how do we calibrate these things, right? And it was just, I'm looking at the circuit, I'm talking to them, and I said something like, what if you did this and this and this to bleed current from one place to the next so that when you made these adjustments, they would eventually balance out? And sure enough, it worked. It was, you know, within one or two cycles of that sine wave of the modulation, you know, chorus, chorus goes up and down, right? Flanging yep. goes up and down. And within one or two cycles, those analog part, you know, it, uh, imperfect parts would then come back into balance. And those are little things that, you know, are, it's, it, you know, like, uh, they're smart because they're dumb or I'm, I'm dumb because I'm smart or one or the other, you know, I don't, yep. it's just not having the education, not having the full knowledge, but then sort of being able to just, kind of uh, a blue sky, you know, some, some things, yeah. uh, but I'm nothing without an engineer, you know, I'm nothing without really good, you know, electrical engineers, you know, around me, helping me with sure. know, making this stuff, you know, making this stuff come to light. Yeah. It's funny, you know, I, I've come to realize that, that people that uh, are, are trained in a certain field, they learn the things they teach them in school, but they don't, if they haven't had that passion prior to work things out, uh, for themselves, there's little things that they'd be like, oh, I didn't teach us about that in school. Uh, yeah, yeah. And the one guy that happened to be uh, 
a NASA engineer at some point. You know, he had put things in space. He'd worked on the Mars rover. He's not, this is not for lack of understanding or knowledge at all. Yep. Uh, like I said, you know, it's, it's the dumb solution sometimes that turns out to work, but um, you can count on me for some dumb suggestions every once in a while, I guess. Yep, um, yep. But it's that, that different way of thinking, isn't it? Rather than the school, yeah, it really yeah. is. Yeah, yeah, it's coming at something from a different perspective, and that's how you end up with something like P rails too. Somebody's, you know, how can I make a humbucker that sounds like a P ninety when it's split and this and that? And everyone was, people had tried little ceramic magnets underneath a humbucker coil, and then Alnico over here or whatever, and they tried all these things, and then I'm just sitting there looking at them, saying like, okay, I can fit the P ninety geometry within the humbucker shell, so therefore, how do I now? you know, b build everything else around that to end up with a functioning humbucker, you know, that provides these, you know, woofer and a tweeter and this extended range and things like that. But um, so some of those things like that, I'm, I'm, I'm just as surprised as anyone else that I happen to be the first guy to, to, you know, to bring something like that to market or come up with it. So. And, and the same with, with Luthery, like with your own guitar company, that's all just a, a self-taught skill, is it? Uh, it is, yeah. So uh, a little bit of woodworking, you know, training and things like that. But yeah, I used to comb through the Stuart McDonald catalog and watch all the, you know, videos that I could um, to try to just absorb that knowledge. You know, I did. I was. I didn't do well in school because instead of that, I was trying to figure out guitars. You know, so I had I had the bandwidth. I just wasn't applying it to, um, you know, eleventh uh, grade biology or something like that. You know, you know that's that's quite a common. A common thing. Um, Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, and I think they try they, they probably label that as ADHD or something now. You know, why Absolutely. aren't you paying attention to this? And Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. And there are and I'm happy that some of those things are being brought to light or people are calling things what they are, you know, they're coming up with new names for things. Um, sometimes it's not that, you know. I've made some jokes on other you know, podcasts that, you know, sometimes it maybe the teacher could just be a little more interesting and not go home and, you know, drink a bottle of Jack Daniels every night, regret their life decisions. But, you know, if, if, uh, if it's engaging, you know, then I'll, I'll usually want to learn about it. You know? Yeah. It's funny. It reminds me of, um, when I was back in high school and I'm, I'm pretty much self-taught with everything, but the back of guitar magazines was a great resource with all the columns and everything in there. And I remember going back to my senior year in high school and I was doing film and television and okay. they were trying to do, uh, watch this old movie from the 1950s and do a, a review on it or whatever. And I, so I've, I was recently diagnosed with ADHD and I, one of the things that I realized is if I'm into something, I'm so into, into it. I'm obsessive. Yeah. If I don't yeah. give a, if I don't, not into something, I really don't give a fuck. And that was one of those, <laughs> I really don't give a fuck moments. <laughs> and so I'm sitting there flicking through my guitar magazines and I was reading a home recording um, column, probably yeah, Craig Anderson or one of those guys. Uh, yeah, right. Yeah. And I remember my teacher walking past and snatching my, my magazine off me and taking it. Uh -uh. And then he went, and then he went and sat down and he opened it up to the page I was at. He started reading it and he came over to me. He's put it in front of me. He goes, is this what you're reading? I said, yep. He goes, do you understand that? I said, yep. And he just sort of looked around. He just went, you keep reading that because that's, that's years ahead of what I'm trying to teach you. So, yeah, so you, need, you need somebody to um, yeah. acknowledge that. Yeah, the, the right mm -hmm. teacher to go, oh, okay, this guy doesn't fit in the curriculum, but yeah. he's doing good on his own. So, yeah. Well, I, I think, would, you know, I, 
I had a double whammy. So my first, up until senior year in high school, I was at a Catholic school, a private school, you know, so small school, very narrow focus, you know, walk this line, do exactly these things, you know, or else you don't fit in. And so uh, they were not into that really. Um, you know, it's funny. Sometimes I get the uh, the little alumni letters, you know, like, oh, would you like to donate for, you know, for the continued? I'm like, no, no, I would not. <laughs> you know, no yep. offense, but no, no. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I'm sure, you know, who knows? Maybe by now they're, they're a completely different operation. And, you know, they uh, they give everyone space to become, you know, to be who they are. But uh, I when I went to the public school, the final, my senior year, that was where I had wood shop and electronics. And I was able to do independent study and build guitars in school. Wow. You know, and that was, you know, so that was great. Uh, that really helped, you know, push me along so that by the time I, you know, was out of high school, even I was already making guitars. Awesome. And and so you did you did you start off making guitars for yourself? Um, yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. Seems to be a yeah, common... I would do some for other people. Some friends would want me to make something or maybe my bandmate needed a guitar, you know, so we'd put something together for him. But um, but yeah, I had started off. So by the time I was even leaving uh, high school age, I was already making the complete guitar. I was already making the neck, the body um, and uh, pre-bought fingerboards. Maybe, you know, you don't do the fret slots. Yep. Um, but I was already that I was already that engaged at that at that stage, and so then everything subsequent to that is just built upon that. Cool, cool, and 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 you know it's funny we were just talking about the whole schooling thing and having that bit of paper. I think in creative fields, man, that that really doesn't mean much, does it? Uh, yeah, it, it depends on the situation, but you're right. You're right. Yeah, yeah. I've yeah, worked in a few yeah, studios those- where people be constantly ringing up wanting to get uh, studio work. And you say to the boss, oh, this guy's applied and he's gone, well, mate, tell him to come in here and make tea. And, and you got the guy, oh, no, but I just graduated this school. That's good, mate. Come That's in great. and make some yeah. tea. Yeah. I'll tell you how I take my tea. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. Great. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, Frank, I, I really wanted to um, pick your brains just about guitar teching because um, I know you've just done a run teching for Steve Stevens. And I know in the past you've done some work with Steph Carpenter from the Deftones as well, and I've seen that rig, and it looks quite complex. Uh, Is is there any other guys out there that I'm I'm missing that you've done some work for? Not too much. I mean, it's it's always been like fill-in work. So I, you know, Warren Demartini a a few months back, um, just a hand, just a handful of people. Jack Blades was there. Um, And but you know that hadn't been my career path. It's not something that I. Um, one that I started doing, you know, or is pursuing. What happened is I was, I'm really good friends with a lot of techs. And so uh, the one main tech, Rem, um, he was, I've been good friends with him for years. We're building some guitars together. I've worked on Steph's guitars with him, worked on with Steve Stevens with him. Um, and so when the times, you know, when he would be double booked between them, I would fill in with one or the other. And so now this most recent tour, he just could, he can't do it. And, um, so I did it. I may just, I may end up being Steve's tech going forward in perpetuity. I don't know. Um, you know, I'm good. I'm good with however this thing plays out, but, uh, but that's why you see me getting, you know, doing that late in the game. Billy Idol obviously doesn't tour, you know, 24, seven, 365 days a year. So uh, that was still it. It's not going to interfere with me making guitars. I still can come back to my shop uh, and keep making guitars. I'm here now. Next week, a little bit of Las Vegas. Tomorrow, there's a you know recording down in Los Angeles. I'll drive down. I'll drive back. 
and I may still be working on guitars at night, you know, by, by 5.30 p.m., by this time tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I wanted to pick your brains a little bit about, about Steve's Rick mm-hmm. and um, just – oh, I was going to say just before COVID. Yeah, I guess it was uh, before everything shut down. I, I happened to yeah. see Billy Idol playing in Brisbane um, and um, met Steve afterwards, thanks to, to Dave Friedman. He, he lined that up for me. Mm-hmm. And yeah. what a, what a lovely chap! I also had him on for for a live chat, and Steve's just yeah. a champion, isn't he? He's the best, yeah. And he's into gear, yeah. And and he understands it all, so you can have great conversations with him. Um, so yeah, he uh, he's not a diva, you know. He's yeah. uh, I, I total. He's the total package. Like I said, I'm not. I didn't pursue this, so it's not like the minute those gigs are over, I'm thinking like, who else can I tech for? What what else get? What other gig can I get? Um, I am so happy to just be, um, hanging with him, you know, and people like Steph, uh, it's just, you pick and choose, you know, I have the luxury, I should say, to be able to pick and choose that I have my own business and I do other things so I can decide, you know, if I want to go out or not. Um, and he, and he's great. Yeah. He's so great. So when I had Steve on the show, he, um, he phoned in quite early, like it's probably about half hour out and, uh, everything worked fine. So we just had a bit of a chat and I, I said to him, man, your, your tone was absolutely kicking. And he was quite excited um, to tell me that they were doing something different and that they were running, they weren't running mics on stage anymore. That was all running through um, speaker IRs and how he went out the front and heard it and just went, Oh my God, this is just uh, yeah. amazing. Are you uh, off the top of your head? Do you know the signal flow of his, of his rig? Are you able to yeah. run through that? Uh, yeah, so give us a rundown. If, if if they were running IRs then, I would assume they were running that Boss Wazacraft amp expander. He was, yep. So that is what's in his rig now. Now that you're right, that just happened because uh, or prior to COVID, um, the previous times that I had filled in for him was still the Bradshaw rig, amps, uh, center left and right cabinets, all three mic'd, you know. And um, so that was the rig that I had set up for him the last time. Now, he had a side project called Deadline Ritual where he was using just the pedal board and a fewer, you know, smaller, uh, a fewer number of heads, right? He wasn't doing center, left and right. So the current rig that you see was kind of born out of that. It was born out of trying out a little smaller rig, realizing it sounded great, and then, uh, and then working that into his Billy Idol rig. So he still plays the Freedmans. It's, a, it's still a real amplifier. And it's and if anything, he may be allowed to even crank those amplifiers a little louder because they're hitting the Wazacraft. He doesn't have to worry about the speaker cabinets themselves. But we used to have to cover those in blankets and soundproofing and all those things. So we had a relatively quiet stage. Those cabinets were off stage. They were very far to the back. Um, and at the beginning of this tour, we still would have a couple of cabinets as backups just in case we went that route. Um, but for as time has gone by, we're, uh, we hadn't been even setting those up. We're just using the Wazacraft. So he uses the Celestian IR pack in there. I can't tell you which one he's using. You know, he probably, he would, he would know, but, um, I just know it as setting number 10 on the, on the Amp Expander. Okay. Um, but it, it's whatever he has loaded in there. Maybe it's a Friedman cabinet or it could be a sewer cabinet or something. Um, he had been... Oh, I know. Yeah, he's st- so he's still using two different ones. So oh, yeah. what he sa- what he sends to the house as left is not the same as what he sends to the house as right. Um, so it's you know just to mix it up a little bit. They're both okay. selections, but you know so that's so those are the two signals. But um, between those two things is a uh, RJM, uh, I believe is the name, the pedal board, you know, switcher, 
and a giant pedal board filled with various items that most of which are not on um, until they need to be for a specific song. Uh, so in that regard, it's similar to an old Bradshaw rig, you know, where you looped, everything was looped in and out. The boards were made by Dave Friedman. And there's also a Line 6 uh, the Helix something or other. HX effects. Helix. HX yeah, that's effects. Right, the HX yep. effect. And that's really like ping pong delays and a few other things, but it's not used as uh, as uh, what I would say a tone you know piece yep. in his rig. Um, it's just in and out when he needs those uh, delays or, um, and he has like an analog. He has a memory man, like on his board as well. Um, I can't remember if it's the big one or whatever, but uh, so he has. Uh, I think those were still analog. I'm not sure. There might have been a deluxe memory man with tap tempo. I can't remember if there was ever a, an all digital memory man. But um, but so he has those effects like sitting on his board. Then he'll sometimes use those, or he'll sometimes have something programmed in the line six. Um, sometimes it's a noise gate in the line six. You know. Okay. And Is he also using that stuff that kicks in and out? So I've, I've got an HXFX just sitting down there. And, and as soon as you mentioned that and just knowing you know, his heads and everything, there is a channel switching function on that. Is that what he's using to change the channels? Probably not. No, he's using nope. that RJM, that multi-switcher. That's that oh, huge sure. okay. That's a huge grid of, of a bunch of pedals. So yep. he taps one button on that and everything goes, you know, everything goes from there. Yep. So that's going to be what changes the amps channels. And, um, and then within that, he can still go in and tap on you know, individual effects. If sure. he wants to, uh, well, I should say individual effects over on the pedal board, um, and then I think even on there there might even be some scene changes, you know, because you can kind of you got to tell the board what to do with everything, what what you want each button to do. So he may have some some things where he can then go in and tap a, a scene change on the line six that's irrespective of everything else in the chain. Yep. Uh, cool. Yeah. And that's uh, so. All that hits the the Boss Tube Amp Expander, mm -hmm. uh, and then you said you've got two different IRs set up in that that's sending the right. to front of house. Right, is that right. purely just to get a bit more of a stereo width about it? Is he still it's, running stereo? I assume so. Oh yeah, it is stereo, and there's yep. ping pong on like flash for fancy, and uh, you know, so there's it's a it's definitely a stereo rig uh, through and through. Um, he we're not using the Wazacraft amp expanders for their effects loop. So there's not anything, you know, stuck in there like a delay or anything like that. That's just, that's just used like a attenuator yep. and, uh, and, uh, and then it goes off to the front of the house. Cool. Am I right in thinking that he was not using any cabs on stage on this current run? So that's what I was saying is we started off that they, we put them up there. Um, depending on, we still travel with them, but you are correct. You're not, he's not, we're not listening to any cabinets on stage right now. There was a, like I said, there was a time when we would, we would turn them up a little bit, you know, leave the mics on and it was a just in case. But you know, the irony there is if it's the boss that has a problem, I have to unplug it anyways and plug it into cabinets, you know what I mean? It's like, so there's not really any, but it's, so it's kind of a pacifist, you know, pacifying thing where you, you're like, all right, well, at least I have some cabinets up here, you know, in case I need them. Yeah, um, but you're right. Yeah, the cabinets really aren't part of the of what you hear uh, out, out in front of house. And I think just looking at pictures, I saw that he's got two of the tube amp expanders. Is that just a, a redundancy? No, setup? that's the stereo. That's, oh, okay. That's why 
Yeah, and so he'll set one to one. So they're they are set up as two like dual mono, but they okay. are left and right. Yeah. Okay. And does he have any redundancy stuff going on in his rig if something should go down, or is it just like, no, this is pretty bloody reliable. We'll just leave this go as is. No, I mean, because technically the backup for the amp expander is to plug straight into the cabinet, right, and to put microphones up. Um, the head cabinet has backup heads, so we can plug in another. There's a third backup head. He uses two heads. What's the likelihood that both go down? Very slim. So we have one backup head, and the pedal board is not backed up. So, you know, his, his MIDI control pedal board and all that. Um, but he had he had been traveling with a backup pedal board. He just got the neural DSP quad cortex. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, so that became the backup now. He took the time to program the set onto that. That became the backup. We did a fly date in, uh, I believe, in uh, Alaska, where that is all he used. So he did. He is capable of using that for a whole show. But, you know, he leaned over to me after. He goes, you know, it's it's okay for... 80 90 percent you know it gets you there but it's not it you know and uh, so i wouldn't foresee him going to that i know um i know megadeth has gone all to that yeah um, but for someone like steve it's not he's not he's not there yet um but it's a great backup in fact yep. it's a, to me it's a better backup than the pedal board because you don't have to tap dance he actually has his pro, his gig programmed into it so as a backup he can just still get you know just tap through all the different sh- different songs. Awesome, awesome. Like yeah. you said, it, it, it is 80, 90% there. Yeah. There's just that little something. Yeah. And, you know, um, people keep posting things saying, oh, listen to this, it's identical. And I was actually sure. at uh, the Melbourne Guitar Show a couple of years ago, and I went to see Brett Kingman do a demo of – uh, the boss was a craft stuff compared to, and he was a being against the Friedman sure. head and he was like, sure. okay. And he was doing this AB thing and I was sure. picking them every time. And he, and I think right. at one point he sort of turned around, he's, he's going, but you obviously know the answers. Put your, put your hand down. It's like, right. this is no, I, 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 I can hear else. it. And yeah. for me, people seem to listen to these simulators and things as uh, in terms of EQ and they've got that nailed. But if you listen to it, right like you're listening to a compressor. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. It's it's the dynamic that's different absolutely. to me, to me anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just the way it sits, sits in it. track. Yeah. yeah. Are you hearing yeah, the same and, thing? And a lot of, yeah, and a lot of the, um, a lot of those things that are set up like gotchas, you know, they're like, see, you can't tell, or some, you know, half the people even picked the simulation and thought that sounded better. And it's like, well, that's great. But we're talking about the way it feels when I'm behind the strings, you know, when I'm actually the person that's striking the strings and then feeling that interaction and what that compression curve is like and the harmonic multiples that are contained within a distortion, you know, the distortion, it's like, that's when the person will, um, person who's playing the instrument will often know more than you will in the first, second, third row, let alone in the back of the room. And so these discussions aren't really about that. You know, I liken these discussions more to uh, a paintbrush, you know, can some, can an artist paint me a beautiful picture with some with different paintbrushes than what are their favorites? And the answer is yes, they can still do it. And you'll still look at the picture and the painting. You know, you'll say that's amazing, that's fantastic. But the artist will say, you know, I, I wish I had my brushes. And and those are the kinds of things, you know, to the artist, to the person who has to express and has to do the work. Um, if they can feel the difference, then it's there. Uh, the other part of it is, in my experience, is listener fatigue. 
Um, and that can be for the player as well. But in stabs, in short stabs or in short demos, whether it's compressed on YouTube or not, um, we can hear this and we can say, oh, yeah, that does sound great. That sounds really good. Um, 10 minutes in, 20 minutes in, uh, again, even as the player recording tracks, there can be a little bit of a fatigue, a fatigue that sets in. And, and those are the kind of things that lie beneath. You know, they lie below something that I can show you on a scope. They fall below, you know, be, below me being able to pick favorites out of 20, 10 are Sims and 10 are real, you know, yep. it's not that it's, you know, just give me the guitar. Let me get behind the thing and I'll tell you what I want to play. Sure. Sure. And, and another thing for me is the listener experience. If you're a fanboy like me that likes to get right down the front of a concert and not hearing it coming out of the cabs on stage, yeah. um, you know, I, I've had quite a few guests on who I've seen live and I've been that guy down the front. And they're raving to me about, oh, I've got this Axe FX rig now. It's so convenient to travel with. Seems sure. to be the big thing. Absolutely. Convenient to travel with. Um, the and quad sounds- cortex is like this big. We have yeah, it in a yeah. little briefcase. Yeah. You know? But I'm thinking, yeah, but I saw you when I was right down the front and yeah. you were right there, but your sound was coming from yeah. way out to the sides right. there. And yeah. I kind of yeah. missed when I used to see you guys and – having your ramp in my face. Yeah. So there's, there's that element of two, isn't there? Yeah. And that's, and that is missing. I mean, they do run some wedges. There is some stage noise, but um, for the most part, you're right. But he, the fact that he has two power sections being cranked up, hitting that, those amp expanders with the Celestian IRs, when you're out front of house, that impact really is still coming through the PA with a lot of power, you know, a lot of gusto. And yeah. then, um, and then of course there's his synth rig and his acoustic rig. Cause he's playing those two things as well. Um, so it's a pretty extensive, it's a pretty extensive setup. So, how does he run um, the, uh, the the synths and the acoustics? He uses um, piezo drivers, so not the magnetic Roland style, mm-hmm. um, but he's got piezos and a Floyd, and he's got other of his acoustic guitars have the piezos in them, hexaphonic piezos, and they're still using all the thirteen pin, you know, Roland MIDI, and he goes to the GR um, GK GR thirty, I think it is. Um, that's the synth that he uses. Uh, and so then that rig has a stereo signal that sends to the front of house, uh, for the acoustic, he has, uh, he was using a mic preamp, like a real expensive, nice one. And it sounded great. Um, gave us a few problems. And then I talked to my, uh, Fishman buddies and I said, let's get him a platinum pro, uh, you know, it's a, there's platinum, uh, pro DI and the aura pedal. Uh, and. I tone matched him, you know, to the preamp that he was using. And that day that we got it, a friend, an artist friend of mine up in San Francisco um, brought, I had it shipped to his house because I knew I could get it. You know, he could go there and I would get it from him when we were in San Francisco. So Prashant brought it over and uh, and gave it to me. We plugged it in. That night he was already using it. He's like, this sounds better than this preamp that I was using. Um, And then the beauty is we don't really bring the aura Imaging in, um, you're familiar with no, I'm not no technology. No. Okay, so this is a perfect segue because they've been doing that for years, if not twenty. I mean, maybe it's decades now, but they've been working on this technology, and the, with the popularity of IRs, it's become much easier to actually explain what they're doing um, because that an IR would take away the cabinet and the microphone relationship and yep. replace it. What Fishman had always been doing with the Aura system was taking the sound from the piezo, right? It's a very two-dimensional sound, um, and replacing everything that was between that and if you had a beautiful microphone sitting out in front of the guitar. 
And so it is, in essence, it's like an IR for your acoustic guitars. It kind of functions that way. It's, it's, you know, if I was sitting a couple of feet in front of my acoustic guitar listening to it, how would that sound versus the piezo? And in order to do that, that's why I liken it to the IRs. In order to do that, you do need to span the time constant. It's not an EQ curve. It's got nothing to do with it. It's not reverb either, but it's that space in a room. And so Fishman has hundreds, if not thousands now in, in their library of all these different images that you can download. But um, mainly, you know, they sell the, the box. If you get the floor box, you can sc scan through like all the different bodies, you know, Jumbo, Dreadnought, this and that, you know, and there's a, there's a bunch of different images per each one. So there's a, ton, you get a pedal that has a ton of images. And so what we do now is when it's, when it's TV or broadcast, then we'll dial in some of that so that that's more that sort of coffee house acoustic sound. You know? Okay. Yeah. But when, but when you have screaming SPL coming out of a PA system, it's kind of end up being something you don't really need. You don't need that sort of intimate sound of, you know, that you just get you know, around the campfire listening to the acoustic guitar. You need yeah. that piezo and that power, you know, and he does a nylon string solo uh, in the, in the gigs. That's just beautiful. Uh, so, so, so we don't really, use, you know, we dial it back there. We dial it up when it's like a DI thing, you know, for studio or yeah. uh, inside of a studio. We just did a, a talk show, Jimmy Kimmel talk show. And I Billy yeah, Morrison that. was playing the acoustic. Yeah. So yep. that's on Billy's acoustic on that one. So he's got one now. And, um, and he looked at Steve. He was like, this is, I can't, this, my acoustic sound, the best it sounded, you know? And it's like, well, that's what that box does, you know? Nice. So, and, and does so that, that's the acoustic rig now. Okay. And does that uh, handle some of the issues that uh, piezo pickups have in the dynamics? I know that piezo kind of, when you're hitting it soft, it's really soft. When you hit it hard, it's not a natural yeah. curve. That's does correct. the aura yeah. help deal with some of that? It, um, it can just because it's now communicating what would have happened if there was a microphone sitting in front of the guitar. But both the Platinum and the Aura have compressors on them as well. And the compression curve is very natural. It's very much something that you would associate with sort of coming back. You know, you, if you put it in subtly, you're kind of coming back to what it would sound like with a Neumann right up against the guitar. Um, and if you put it in a little bit more heavy, which he does sometimes for some of his you know, solo stuff, uh, because now you're talking about protecting those drivers on the PA system. You know, you're talking about, you have, you have to manage that. It's not about now playing it into earbuds or laying a track. Yep. It's about, you know, the front of house. And so, and even in ears for that matter, you know, you don't want to blow your ears out by having too much dynamic range. You want to compress that a little bit for your ears. Um, so there is compression on board. Fishman was very smart with the compression. They have it like one knob where you turn it up and it doesn't get louder or quieter. Just the curve changes while it right. simultaneously adjusts for the volume. Yep. Um, but so that helped, but he did have a compressor on his other mic pre as well. So I kind of just mimicked that curve. So on the Jimmy Kimmel, I, I did see a replay of that. And man, it mm -hmm. sounded great. Like Billy's vocals was just so on point. His uh, voice is great. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. yeah. And I guess a lot of that was, is in-ear technology now like just the low notes people would quite often try and over overseeing and that causes them to, to yes. sing sharp etc but he just yes. nailed that and then when he got up at the end he sort of started building some higher notes i'm thinking yeah so on point now one thing yeah. i did notice was that steve did have a cab on stage for that mm -hmm. was that yeah. to help with he had like a very sustainer like part and i saw an on a um on a forum somewhere on Facebook, somebody was asking about what Steve yes. was using to pull off mm -hmm. the sustainer type 
parts. Right. And you said, hey, right. I know the answer to that. You want to spill the beans? <laughs> I do, yeah. Um, so the cabinet was not on. It was the Wazacraft amp expanders going directly to the, to the um, well, not, you wouldn't call it front of house, even yep. though there was a PA system. Uh, but going direct to broadcast, it was the Wazacraft. That cabinet um, was not put, did not have signal. There are times, there have been times in the past when they would crank the wedges up so that he could get some signal to play off of and feedback with. Um, we're not doing that now. The sound that you heard specifically for that song is um, a JHS muffaletta on the JHS fuzz setting. And so all of that sustain that you hear, that's just him playing the note out, having the note ring out for that long, you know, as he's fading in. So he's got a volume pedal that he rocks up and down to get that attack right so there's yep. a, he's sort of doing a fade in um but outside of that there was not anything um causing a feedback loop or causing any other kind of infinite sustain now that being said we did also just grab a schecter uh with a sustainer in the neck position right the sustainer pickup yep uh and a floyd rose we just got that sort of midway through the last tour he's not using it on that song so that's still not you know what we're talking about here um but he's having some fun with the sustainer on a couple of other things that he does with solos where that has allowed him you know he's you know he'll have it feedback up to a fifth and things like that um so having fun with that has caused him to not need the wedges to also be brought, cranked up you know when he's about to do a, a big feedback guitar solo he actually just he now can walk around and still run that sustainer and turn it on so he's using that for like two or three uh songs now Cool. Uh, just and just having to blast with it. I, I've got a sustainiac in an old Hamer of mine, and I absolutely mm -hmm. love it. Uh, yeah. I pulled it out uh, a few years back because I had the the old nineteen late late eighties version in there. I think mm -hmm. my Hamer is an eighty nine or a ninety. Okay. And it had a cavity in the back for two nine volt batteries, and the yeah. old system. I would chew through those two nine volt batteries in an hour, mm -hmm. and uh, as soon as the batteries went dead. My bridge pickup, even with the sustainer off, would not work anymore. So I, I pulled it out. That's right. Yeah, it does put in a, put in a new one uh, mm -hmm. a year or so ago. I did a little uh, demo video of that, um, oh. which Sustainiac have shared the crap out of. Um, and I, yeah, I'm loving the new system. Fraction of the the battery power, and I happen yeah. to have the cavity, as I mentioned, for for two nine volts. So I get mm -hmm. super duper length uh, life yeah. out of that. Yeah, that's great. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, now I wanted to ask you about Steph Carpenter's rig, man. Uh, cause I've seen that a lot and that's a whole lot of rack gear. He's got like JMP ones and pods yeah. and how is it, has he got all that running into a big switcher or does he have everything just going serial? No, he does have the same kind of switching like Steve, you know, where these guys have their, um, their multiple, you know switcher that basically tells everything what to do and yep. puts things into loops there was a time when he was using the axe effects he did the same thing that you and i talked about a minute a while ago and decided that those marshall jmp ones were were better yep. for him uh so it's that and then he i believe he has some rack effects there's an intel effects in there and stuff uh i could be wrong about that now but i think there was back then but i think that's still there uh that same friend of mine tech is is hanging out with him even as probably as we speak, I think working on that rig a little bit. But he's kind of, he's usually in a state of flux on that rig, but it's the Marshall, it's pedals, and then, you know, and other goofy effects and stuff like that. Uh, and then Fryette power amps. 
so he's cranking up the Fryant power amps. For front of house, he does actually still run uh, a, a, a loader, but it's not the Boss like Active IR stuff. Mm-hmm. He's doing the Rivera. Um, what do you call them? Rock crushers. Yep. Yep. And so it's, it is a DI signal still going in front of house, but uh, not quite in the same way. He's not using the IRs. Now, maybe he'll switch to that at some point in time, too. But when I text for him, that was what he that was what he was using. And, and, and that was talking about a backup rig. He traveled with like a backup for everything. So you could always just plug in, you know, something, take something out, you know, and pop something in. Um, so it was a, still it was a ton of gear, like you say. You know, and a lot of pedals, you know, a lot of pedals out in front of them in a pedal board. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. So, Frank, on the road as, as a guitar tech for guys like this, what is your typical day? Uh, depending, it, it, it can start at different times of the morning, but it, it's an early morning. And you go to do the load-in. Um, I have the luxury, I guess, if you want to call it, of being, you know, the guitar you know, the main lead guitar player in the band's tech. And it's a very complicated rig. Like I said before, it's kind of like setting up three rigs, acoustic, synth, electric. Um, And even on the electric side, it's a pretty complicated rig. And so oftentimes between stage hands they have, um, I'm not really doing anything that's crazy exertive. You know, Uh, it's not to say that I have people do everything for me. It's still, you know, you'll still sweat. Um, but at, it's very nice that they have a lot of stagehands wheeling all the stuff off the truck, bringing it to you where you need to, you know, where you, you tell them where to put it, put this here, put that there, put this there. And when everything gets there, sometimes you might even tell them, take the lids off for me, you know, put the lids over there, get rid of this, whatever. And then I'm doing all the wiring, cabling, you know, setting up the whole rig. Um, that's the morning, you know, midday, then you, maybe you get some lunch and then you go back and do your line checks, you know, so you're basically listening. It's not a true sound check. We're just kind of line checking. A lot of times the band won't do a sound check. They've been doing this long enough. Yeah. So as long as the signals are going through the guy in the, you know, the monitor board guy and our front of house guy, they know what it's supposed to look like. And, uh, so they'll just go out right out and start the first song without a sound check. But, um, and then, you know, so between after lunch, after line check, it's uh, maybe some restrings and, you know, setting up the guitars and things like that. Uh, I like to stay occupied, you know, so I'm, I'm, I'm usually doing something, you know, to the, to the guitars or trying to make some things better. But, um, and do you, you change, do you change strings you every show? Is that? It depends. No, the nice thing with Steve is he travels with like eight jillion guitars. So every gig, I mean, he has, you know, there's a sparkly Les Paul he plays for the second half of Eyes Without a Face. And that's it every day. You know what I mean? Like, it's, so that guitar has half a song on it every gig. You know, what, 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 you know, it's like, why would you change strings for a half a song? You know, um, when you have, an, you know, if you have another guitar that's used for six, seven, eight songs in a show, you might change it the next day. Um, but these guitar, each individual guitar is not getting that much usage. He has another guitar that lights up. He uses it for that one song. Yeah. He has a pink guitar that has a laser type sound in it. That's a new nags that he just got. He uses it for the one song. So, you know, that's kind of what we're what we're dealing with. So, so I don't have to. You know, the bass tech I think has to change strings every every night. You know, every 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 time uh, the bass strings are quick to lose. You know, some of that detailed high end that the bass player wants to hear. Um, 
Billy Morrison is the other guitar player. I don't know how often, you know, he changes strings, but that's another guy who will change guitars out a lot. So uh, in, in a set like ours, no one particular guitar gets abused um, too much. And the nylon string, I, you can't, I did one time I strung the nylon before the show and you really have to stretch those strings out like yeah. crazy. They'll go out of tune right in the middle of the song. Uh, but we were okay. It worked. But ideally with that one, it's like you wait, you wait, you got a day off in between and you can change those strings on the day off in between. So they have a day to sit. Yeah. Um, same thing with acoustics, maybe two shows, you know, after the second show, I'm going to change those strings because the yep. acoustic strings can die pretty quickly. Do you have any, do you have any secrets for stretching out strings for people? No, I stretch up. Uh, I go along it, you know, along the length. Um, and sometimes I will, you know, I think it was the Dario Planet Waves or somebody had a string stretcher. I wouldn't use that, um, but it worked by working two different axes. So like I'll hold the string and then push down on it with my thumb, you know, so I'm actually sort of getting like a, you know, an S out of it, you know, as I run along. Um, but that's about it. I don't have tuning issues, you know, once I stretch the strings out. Yep. Um, some, some of these guitars are locking, some of them aren't. Um, but I also, I have, a, so some people might not know this or other techs may not have this. I have a tuner line. Um, so I plug in my, uh, you know, the guitar that I'm about to hand him, I plug it in. I even have like a more like fake amp, you know, it sounds, you know, what do we say? 80, 90%, right? No, it sounds a lot like Steve's rig. It's yep. just one of those, you know, thing. It's, it's not great, but I can actually be sitting there. I'm playing along with Steve, listening to the, how they're tuned for that song. I'm tuning the guitar up uh, and I'll temper it a little bit. You know, uh, Steve has, you know, graciously said that, you know, when I hand him the guitars, you know, the tune is a little sweeter, you know, it's just sweetened a little bit. And I'll be cognizant of that. I happen to have like, a, you know, pitch, good pitch in my head. Um, and so I'll listen and I'll know what song's coming up and I'll, you know, so I'll kind of massage it a little bit for the key of the song of the next guitar that I'm gonna hand him. That's another luxury I wouldn't have if I was doing, um, if I were doing, uh, uh, you know, six songs per guitar and then you give them back, you have to just, for those types of things, you have to give no choice. You have to just uh, tune it to the needle, right? You just get the needle in the middle and give yeah. it to them and they're playing all these things. But for me, I get to, like I said, I get to kind of tweak it a little bit based on the key of the song he's going to play. And, you know, that's funny that you should say that because, um, man, <clears throat> right in my early days of learning to play electric guitar, a good friend of mine, he was just one of these guys that was a natural musician, but he was too shy to really go into bands or anything. But he would pull apart tape decks and build it, turn it into an amplifier and stuff. But he showed right. me tuning the guitar to the distortion. Like he'd do the B string. Yes. If he did it to it to a um, to a tuner, and then right. tried to do, oh, I got a guitar right here. Yeah, thirds and triads and things. Yeah, like yeah, that. exactly. It's like if you played yeah. the open G string, but then held down. Uh, the third fret on the B and just do that interval, that mm -hmm. that gets used a lot. You know, big power chords and my guitar's out of right. tune here. Right. And I would right. tweak it until that, that distortion. Yes. Yeah. Is that the yeah. kind of thing you're talking about? Uh, it is, yeah. So I have a very saturated sound, um, distorted sound. I can shut it off. I have, you know, the two channels on that thing. But I am usually, usually tuning with distortion. I'm tuning with heavy distortion. So even when I grab the acoustic guitar, or his nylon string, yep. I'm hearing it in my head through all that, you know, amp distortion, you know, so if you were listening to me test that, you'd think it was, you know, 
an electric guitar sound, but that is absolutely correct. I mean, I'm listening for the beating, uh, but again, I'm kind of massaging that between like the thirds and the, you know what I mean? The, you yep. know, the, the, the B string one fret up down, you know, depending on what he's doing. The first song they open with is, um, a B flat bar chord. It's in B flat, you know, so all the strings pressed down and, and, uh, you know, and barring it. Uh, so that's, you know, that's another, it's an interesting way to, to tune a guitar to start a show. Yeah. Yeah. You know, is you're tuning it on, you know, all the notes squeezed down first fret and yep. then some. Yep. Um, now I believe that Eddie Van Halen was, was similar in, um, wanting his guitars tuned the same. And if oh, you were yeah, taking for him, you, you had to yeah. learn his way of tuning. Yeah, he bumps stuff a little bit here and there. And a lot of times the players will bump it for how they squeeze the strings. Yep. Um, I'm a bit of a chameleon, you know, so if I'm setting the stuff up for him, I'll kind of play like him, you know. And if I was setting up a guitar for Ingve, uh, I would have to do that differently, you know. Yep. I wouldn't just grab it and play it the same way and say, hey, you're in tune. Um, and he's pretty particular as well. I think he has – I haven't – I haven't learned it or anything, but I think Ingve has a couple of cents, you know, plus and minus here and there that he does. Okay. Yeah. You know, it's, it's really funny. I remember when I was doing this when I was younger, a friend of mine who was a piano tuner who happened to play guitar, sort of rubbishing the idea saying, how can you tune with all that distortion going? And I'm thinking, how, can, how, you, can, you how not? can you not? Yeah, exactly. Right. right. Yeah. 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 No, you're 100% correct. Those yeah. harmonic multiples will go up, you know, and they're actually going into the multiple higher frequencies, which can even establish more, you know, sort of, a, uh, how do we call it? Like, it's even a closer look at how those two notes are rubbing together, you know, as you go up, um, rather than the low beating, you know, of something down at, at 80 hertz, you know, a longer sine wave, um, and you have two things against each other, you know. Um, but yeah, so I, I, I do that. Um, most of that, most of the night in my ears is a very dirty signal that I'm tuning with. Awesome, awesome. That's great to know. Um, Frank, I remember talking to you a while back about um, the ADA preamp, and mm. you, 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 your face lit up and went, oh, man, I, I know some cool mods for that that really um, bring out some goodness. I've got one sitting right there. I'm interested to know uh, what it is that you like to do to those for anybody that might have one around and yeah. give it a bit of a tweak. Well, so – you know, a lot of capacitor replacements, which you would do on an old amp anyways. So you can just go through and, and replace a lot of the capacitors in the power chain, but also in the tone, um, you know, signal. Um, you can mess with values, but the, even just getting those old caps out and replacing them with better caps that are up to date and fresh uh, is an improvement. Um, the biggest one for me, I'm not an ADA, I'm not a high gain ADA guy. So there's guys that add tube channels and crank up the gain. Um, I have a Burr Brown amp amp. There's one right before the tube stage, uh, which if you pull and put, which clips um, in naturally inside the ADA the way it works. There's an op amp that will clip a little bit prior to the tube distortions, right? So by pulling that and putting in a higher headroom op amp, you actually get more of your signal going directly to the tube, so you have a more natural tube sound. And again, when I use the ADA, I'm not really cranking up the gain too loud. Most of the time, I'm on that. I guess they call it clean tube, right? Yep. That's the, you know, but with that gain up at six, seven, eight, you know, it's still pretty saturated. Yeah, it sounds cool. Um, yeah, and so that's kind of how I use that one. But I'll use the, 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 you know, tube distortion setting on it as well sometimes. But for me, that was what it was. It was mostly that. I opened up the frequencies, I think, a little bit on the mid-range and the treble. 
um, just just slightly. I think I was I think I broadened the cue on the mids a little bit. Uh, but for the most part, that was I to me that was the big one was to was to to bring the signal to the tubes um, uh, without having them being distorted by the op amp in front of it. Okay. Okay. And I, sometimes I'll run a twelve AT seven in one of the stages, you know, in one of the for one of the tubes, um, just to drop the gain down again, you know. But um, but yeah, that was my thing. I kind of zigged when others zagged. You know, they were looking for more gain out of them. I couldn't see how that would be, you know, valuable. Yeah. Personally. Yeah. Yeah. But, but I, yeah it's a great to... little unit. It doesn't have to be shred. You know, that's the thing. It doesn't. You know, and the way I use it, like I'll, I'll use. Oftentimes, I won't use it by itself. I I did. You know for seasons but it's oftentimes i have it in my rack where i have that with some distorted more saturated mids and i'll c combine it with like a mesa quad preamp that's a little bit more lows and highs uh maybe a little less distortion or a little more textured distortion from having two channels at once so i do a lot making composite sounds i'll bring two or three different preamps together out of the same signal not yep. split but you know but i bring them together by kind of you know band pass filtering i'm making you know, getting mids from one and getting highs and lows from the other. Oh, cool. Um, it's something that an amp really can't do, you know. Yep, yep. I found um, adding a a clean boost in front of the ADA really helps. Mm -hmm. Just give it a little bit of a, a pop, uh, a bit of a plosive around the front end of the note as I was playing. Yeah. That was something I was pleasantly surprised because it just sounded a bit flat when I was playing with it. And I was mm -hmm. looking at all the pedals and going, hmm, I'm going to try to hit it with a bit of a boost. And yeah, just a, a clean boost. Man, that brought it really brought it to life. Yeah, and it could be that in the other in the other way, in, or in a in a similar way, but in but by achieving it in a different way, that could be helping it sort of punch through that op amp stage as well. You might be getting a you know a distortion characteristic on that op amp stage before it hits the tubes, where you've now you have a little bit more going through it, and like I said, you're kind of you're kind of powering through that you know and getting the attack that you like. Yep. So Frank, when when you're attacking live for somebody, have you had any monumental fuck-ups go down where you're just like, oh, no, not now, or right. you, any of those moments? I, I haven't really, personally. Um, but again, I've been teching for these guys that have seasoned rigs. You know, they know what they're doing, um, and they usually have good stuff, right? Steve's playing fresh Friedman heads, you know, that are that Dave just looked at probably before the tour and put new tubes in or something. Yeah. Um, so the maintenance is pretty good. There's the, the, there was there was a lot of little nitpicky stuff as we started the tour because this gig this gear had kind of been sitting for a year and a half. So you know you kind of have a build up of potential you know failures. Um, I remember um, you know all of a sudden he grabs a guitar. It's a guitar I used for sound check and it was fine. The whammy bar is just freely spinning, you know, because they had put on a uh, a press fit whammy bar. Maybe it wasn't tight enough, and so at that moment, you know, he goes and whammies it. It skips a thread or comes loose. Um, when I had teched prior to, for uh, a thing that Jack Blades was at, he he um, he turns around, you know, between the songs, takes his sunglasses off and throws them to me, you know, and I, I just like, you know. I'm like okay, and I just reached up and grabbed him right out of the air and caught him perfectly. Um, Steve pulled that whammy bar out because he was like, I can't get it to, you know. So he just pulled it out, right? Yeah. And tossed it to me, and once again, you know, like heroically, it hits the clips the tent, and I still snatch it out of the air. And some of the guys on the bus were like, Yeah, that's a pretty good catch. I said, You got to understand. I said, There's that, like those two catches, like that, that, those are my only 
two catches like out of a million, like in infinity, like I'm two for infinity on that. You know, why I happen to like all of a sudden become athletic for three seconds, I'll never know, you know, but for the most part, that thing would have been in my eyeball, you know, if, if uh, the Frank that didn't really like sports in school had to reach up and catch that thing. Um, but, uh, so, but at least I looked cool, you know, doing it, right? Uh, other things like, there was a headstock break long before the show started, but um, wind was blowing. It blows a tarp, you know, like a tent. The guitar comes off. It breaks through the rubber band that's supposed to hold it in place, noses down, you know, oh. hits the ground. Uh, but it was a backup guitar. That's why it's up on the shelf up top. And then I had family in the next city. We went to a woodcraft. I got the glue I needed, the micro mesh pads. I had it repaired you know, a couple of gigs later. And then it turned out he made that one back to being his number one instead of his number backup because it, you know, the way it played and, you know, something about the piezo or something like that. But so nothing that's outside of my wheelhouse, you know, nothing that was too crazy. That acoustic preamp, when I told you it broke down, I was just able to, um, I was just, I was just able to find what it was in a frantic, you know, um, you know, you know, um, root cause, you know, just trying to figure it out. I, it was something about the DI. It was like a, an op amp had blown between the quarter inch DI and the, and the XLR. So it was distorting, it sounded bad. But if I unplugged the quarter inch, which only went to a tuner, the sound came back. So we got through that gig. But then, like I said, the next, you know, a gig later is when we brought the Fishman stuff in and all of a sudden they love it and it sounds better, you know, than what they've been using beforehand. There was one show where I could see sort of a cell tower stuff, you know, up on the top of the bleachers. Um, but a bunch of noise was coming to the rig, and it was that high-frequency stuff that I know as, like, RF, interference. That, there was those kinds of noises. Um, and, you know, whiny, like, you know, digital whining kinds yep. of sounds. And nothing, you couldn't, you couldn't do anything. We couldn't figure it out. It wasn't, you know, the power wasn't that clean. There was one volt potential, you know, between common. But it was like, that wasn't it, you know. And so I'm walking around the the rack and I'm, and I'm using my body and I'm going, you know, this is changing it. This is helping it. Right. And we're just a wet meat sack is what we are, you know? Yeah. Um, but not even touching ground, just being there, just physically being there. Yep. Uh, so the fix for that night was rotating the entire head rack, like 35 degrees. Wow. It went down. Yeah. And Steve even said to me, he goes, man, when stuff like that happens, he goes, just call Dave Friedman. And tell him like you, you're right, you know. Uh, so, but afterwards, I called him and I explained it to Dave everything that was happening, and he goes, "No, that's in the air. You were never going to get rid of it," you know. So there was kind of some, you know, you know, vindication there. You know, there wasn't some magic thing that I was missing. You know, that I forgot yeah. to check. You know, you, you did you put air in the tires? I told you I put air in the tires. Um, you know, there was not was nothing like that. Um, but those, you know, those types of little things. Yeah, I'm trying to think if there was anything else. Um, I don't know. Sometimes like line six wouldn't switch patches or something, but that doesn't have anything to do with us. You know, yep. it's just weird software updates and things like that. And yep. Steve knows how to, that's the beautiful thing about Steve is he knows how to get through the gig and, you know, make something else happen or kick some different switch. So he has something else that kind of, you know, does what he was hoping that it would do. Yep. And, um, and, and so he's able to do that or play with the delays even, you know, like, well, there's, yep. I can't get the delay to shut off, but oh well, you know, there's delay now that I didn't want. Yeah, um, that leads so, on yeah, to most, most little things. Mostly, it's little things. Okay, that uh, just talking about the the 
radio interference, etc. Um, leads on to a question I got there from Flash Grover, who I believe is Fraser Nairn. I'm, I'm not sure if I'm saying his surname okay. correctly. Hey, Frank, love your work. What's the biggest challenge for a 21st century guitar tech? I I might be the wrong guy to ask. I mean, it's it, w- it would seem that, you know, the COVID is our biggest challenge because if you are working as a guitar tech, you don't have work right now. Um, or you're just starting to work. You know, these guys are just starting to be able to get back to work. Um, and, you know, there is noise in the air. Like I said, you know, that, that cell tower noise. I took a picture of it just for fun. You know, I sent it to Dave. I go, look at, look at what I'm looking at, <laughs> you know. And, uh, and sure enough, you know, again, stage right, it was coming at us, you know, from that way. Billy Morrison didn't have the noise on the other side of the stage. Um, who knows? It, for all I know, it could have been somebody's, you know, down below the stage was running a, you know, spy ring that we know, none of us knew about, you know, was communicating with foreign countries or something. But, um, you know, whatever it was, I sort of visually identified it with some of that junk up there, you know, that was making the noise. But so, yeah, there's noise in the air that there wasn't always, you know, in the past. Um, we're always resetting wireless frequencies because there's RF in the air everywhere you go. And so every night is a different frequency, you know, um, little things like that. But I would imagine booking gigs and 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 staying busy, you know, having, you know, putting a tour together. Because even Rem, the tech for Steve and, and Steph, that's why he needed a trusted buddy to kind of be able to come in and fill in a little bit here and there because sometimes you double book. So I ended up doing the studio work for the Deftones album when the Deftones went and recorded their last album. Um, he couldn't make it. I was in the studio doing the same kind of sweet and tuning like we were talking about, you know, trying to tune up the guitars in such a way that, you know, would would uh, would be complimentary to the album. And those guys were that I consider that fun to do for them because like Chino's not afraid to play out of tune and they will create tension, you know, with tuning and squeezing the strings and banging the strings really hard with their right hand. Um, and I love that because then, but again, the producer would sometimes say, okay, Frank, retune these guitars between takes, you know, get them, get them there. And, you know, every once in a while you'd get a take where I'd say, okay, listen, do exactly what you're doing. But when you get to this chord and you slide up, like don't death grip that one, you know, and she would be like, all right, you know, and you do it and you play it and the performance would be good and it would sound better. You know, it'd sound more, um, more, more in tune. Um, cool. But yeah, I don't know. I don't have a big, I don't know a biggest one. I guess if there, I mean, I can tell you people you should ask that question too. Let's put it that way. Uh, who've been doing it longer and who've worked for more in multiple, multiple acts. Cool, cool. I might hit you up later for a contact for Rem and see if he wants to come and have a chat to me. If yeah, he's that absolutely. way inclined. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's a great guy and he's teched for a lot more people than I have. Yeah, I, I did meet him briefly, as I said, when I went to the, the, uh, right, the, the right. Billy Idol show. Yeah. Man. Steve left some all access passes for me at um at at, at the front, and I I had that, and the security guy wouldn't let me out back. He thought I was part of a paid for meet and greet. And I'm just like, I got a different pass to them, and Rem yeah. had to come out afterwards and go, no nah, man, sure, he's cool, he's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now you mentioned Deftones. Uh, is Steph using the same gear in the studio? Does he use that big rack, or does he use? Yeah, I was gonna. To speak to that too. So the answer is yes, except he will hit the cabinets and they were micing the cabinets. So they were, I think they all still, they also took the signal from the rock crushers so that he had it and he would track it because again, the digital realm, you know, kind of have unlimited tracks. Um, but that would be the difference is that we had some, you know, you had loud cabinets, mics on them, uh, maybe as well as the DI signal where he could mix and match and do what he wanted to do. But you're correct. It's, it is that rig. It was that rig. 
Okay. So that, that album was recorded that way. Chino's uh, rig is basically the same, you know, the Rivera heads and, uh, and some, you know, a smaller complement of pedals, yep. things like that. I, I wasn't sure if um, that rig was out of necess- necessity to pull off those tones right. that he's gotten right. in the studio and it's like, okay, we need to make this monstrous thing. But when I record, yeah, I just go guitar, cable, exactly. this head. Same reason people use the XFX Live. You know, I can get all 115 sounds I want for my for my any song we might pull out of our arsenal. You know, to play that night, and uh, and it's all sitting in one box. But you better believe if I'm going into a studio, I'm going to grab the JCM 800 and you know this amp and that one and yep. that one. You know, yep. This old that- cabinet with the ripped grill cloth. You know that yep. sounds magical. Yeah. Um, but no, in Steph's case, it's basically exactly that. Yeah. Cool. cool. I don't have any visibility. I, Steve. Uh, Billy Idol just released an EP. I don't know what, you know, I don't know how they got there. I don't know what that signal chain was like for some of those songs. You know, they worked on a lot of textures and had a lot of different sounds. But, um, but, uh, but yeah, for the most part, you know, Steve's rig is, is is his rig. You know, he's always using those amps. Yep, I do love the the um, Friedman Steve Stevens head. Um, mm. I've actually got a a Friedman coming soon, and I've asked to put in a little switch so I can get the, the voicing of his amps if needed. Yeah. Great. That's yeah. great. Yeah. It's just a, a thickness about it uh, and a yeah. sweeter top end than the, the, the BEs, the standard BEs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I really I love it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I get to, you know, it's only a few notes at a time, but I get to play that rig every day, you know, that we set up for a show and it's a great sounding, great feeling rig, you know, even into the ears. It's just, it's, it's uh, and you owe a lot, you know, to those heads. Like I said, if, they, if it wasn't the heads, then you could I could find that sound in the quad cortex, right? Cool, cool. I've got a uh, another question here. I'm not sure if we've mm-hmm. really touched on most of it already. Um, how did Frank get to the position he is in? What opportunities did he create to be able to work with the high level performance that he does? And what can a person do to get to that level? Well, I was out of the industry for a while. I actually handled like, you know, investments and insurance and finance and stuff um, for maybe almost 10 years. You know, I had the, basically the real job in, you know, starting a family, right? No. <laughs> uh, and yeah. And so I did that for a while, but it was in that season that I invented P-Rails, which brought me back, uh, you know, in to where I could license that design to Seymour Duncan. And then I worked for them for about six years uh, before doing film guitars and, of course, moving on to Fishman with the Fluence pickups. But um, this industry is very small and it's very um, it's very interconnected. And so when, you know, obviously, you know, all of the same things apply in everywhere in life where you're going to make your own opportunities, right? You're going to go and, um, you know, uh, do your networking or whatever. But I never thought of it as networking, you know, and I, and I gave an interview one time where I was like, you know, it's for me, it's just, just gen, just when you meet people, be genuinely interested in what they do. You know, just want to know, right? That's the first. If you can get that, if you can have your brain to do that, actually have the desire to know and be interested in what you make someone tick or what they do, uh, then a lot of stuff just comes comes out of that. Because two years later, you're like, how the heck am I going to solve this problem? And you go, you know, that one friend of mine. He makes rubber molds, you know, that go into this or whatever. But if I did this, then we could have a part that had, the, you know, 
he could he, I bet he could tell me the viscosity or the softness of the rubber that we need so that this thing doesn't come loose and whatever right yeah and so you just you know kind of always have your eyes and ears peeled but the other thing is you know I've been a person of sort of predictable integrity you know I I, I um I don't know it's it's it, I, I hate sort of talking about myself in this way but you know you're always going to come across challenges you're always going to come across somebody who you know thinks you stink for some reason or you know and sometimes it's them sometimes it's them sometimes they they don't like themselves or they don't they see something in you that they don't like about themselves and it makes them hate you before they even meet you right yeah um and you can't control that but um you know every time you know every time i've been hit, hit with or met with you know any kind of a challenging situation what's happened is you know i've been surrounded by all these people who they know who i am they know that uh you know they know what kind of person i am and so you know it, i know that sounds more like a sermon than it does an answer to a question but if you just conduct yourself with integrity and honesty and you just be who you are and um be a good-hearted person that's always trying to do do good by others and leave people better off than the way that you found them then a lot of times that's what leads you you know to the next opportunity it leads you to be safe you know so rem says to himself you know who do i man the first time he says who am i going to get to fill in for me and he thinks of me part of the reason is because he knows and i was alluding to this earlier but i didn't touch on it you know at that time it's like he knows that i'm going to do a good job right because i know i have all the i have all the background skill sets to be a tech right i build guitars i've designed products i know how to run rigs and design rigs and stuff um so I have that skill set in the back, even though I haven't been attacking for 10, 20 years like those guys have. Uh, but at the same time, he also knew that like I wouldn't just go in and then like try to steal his gig or something, yeah. you know. So I said, you know, I'm keeping the seat warm for you, yeah. And and so he could have faith in that instead of some young kid coming in. Maybe they have to do a great job. Maybe they don't. But then the kids like you know looking around for the next gig or trying to you know or or even bad mouthing the existing techs, right? Yep. So, you know, I don't, I haven't been that person. And so that's, that to me has led to a lot of opportunities. Um, but it's also led to even, like I said, with somebody, um, you know, if someone's not sure whether they like me or not, you know, then sometimes another person will say, no, no, he's, this is how he is. And I'll tell you why. And I'll tell you stories and I'll yep. tell you, you know, how he's treated me. Um, and so that's, that's really true. You can make it, you know, without being that kind of a person but like i said if i if i had to credit anything for being able to continue to do this for a long period of time um it's that it's yep. definitely that yeah. just being easy to tour with is one of the biggest yeah. assets you can have isn't it like um i always bring and up the, I the studio guys i'm sorry i'm gonna cut you off i wasn't gonna, but you'll hear like in the the sidemen you know like the studio guys will say that you know more than half of it is being someone that the person wants to come in the studio and have on their track, right? Yeah. It's, yeah. it's creating those relationships. Anyways, yeah. go ahead. So. Yeah. Um, I was going to say, I saw a, um, a documentary about Ginger Baker, the legendary drummer from, from um, Cream. Mm -hmm. uh, great drummer. The guy was an absolute fucking tool of a person. Right. Sure. And he couldn't get a gig. He could not get a gig. No one wanted to work with him. It doesn't matter yeah. how good you are. If you're not a good guy, no one's going to want to hit the road with you. And right. when I had Pete Thorne on here, and he gets some really cool, cool gigs, and we sort of absolutely busted it down, and it was just like, a he's um, 
not tight. He doesn't have a uh, wife and family at home, so and he can just yes. jump on a plane at short notice and go, yeah, I can be at that gig. But just an, a pleasant guy to be That's around. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I've never, I've never not wanted to hang out with him. Yeah. You know, so that, that I think, like I said, that's, that has to do with a lot of it. Um, the other opportunities, you know, and things like, like I said, you know, I invented something. So I can't offer you a substitute to that other than invent something and go, you know, license it to a company so that you start, you know, you start getting into the business in that way. But, um, but otherwise, yeah, that's, I, I wish I had, there's no magic button on it. You know, and most techs, if you talk to them too, they'll say they kind of fell into it. I had the luxury of kind of going straight to a, a cushy, you know, slot, you know, with, with people like Steph um, and Steve. But, uh, you know, I don't know that I would have wanted to do it if I had been starting, you know, in a van job, you know, band or something like that, because I could have done something else instead. Um, but if you're young and this is an industry that you want to get into, well, then, of course, yeah, find a smaller band, find somebody doing a smaller tour, offer to tech for them for less money than it would take to tech for uh, Metallica or Megadeth, you know, and then you can be doing it. You can do it for a while and you can uh, and you can then, you know, parlay that, you know, kind of work, work your way up the food chain. For me, I'm not really interested in that. I'm not tacking for Steve so that later on I can figure out how I can be able to tech for um you know, for the Rolling Stones or something like that. Sure. You know, that's not really my thing. I do have a family at home. You know, we have four kids and I have this business that I run. So for me, this is a sweet spot. Yep. You know, tacking for Steve, they don't go out that often. Sometimes they do acoustic duo gigs. I'm always, so I'm the guy on that because I'm Steve's guy. But for the most part, it's uh, it's a it's an easy thing to work into our lives as a family. Or the longest I was gone was maybe three weeks. That was hard on the family to be gone for three weeks, but... We pulled it off, you know. I got a solid base, right? We've been married 25 plus years, and so yeah. together for 30 years almost now, my wife and I have been together. Uh, so that sort of that sort of mirrors the bachelor life too, where you don't have anything tied down. You know, you can either have a strong foundation or you can have nothing tethering you down, and it probably works for either one. You know, somewhere in between, if you yeah. have a tumultuous, you know, marriage and, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a bit of a break, yeah. I actually toured yeah, with some guys. You know. I toured some with some guys um, years ago that um, really enjoyed getting away from their families and I was sort of thinking. Right, right. Oh, okay, and, and we go to these. We, Dude, there's a guy on the tour and he says, you know, he, he, he had worked for Sweetwater. He'd done, you know, other things with his life. And when they became more, as they started to become empty nesters, he toured, you know, and he was like, oh, it's safe. it's a joke, of course, but he says it saved my marriage, you know what I mean? Because yep. Right yep. about the time when she's like, get out of here, you know, like, I need some time away from you, you know, go on tour. Yeah. Um, it's just kind of worked out, you know, for him. Like I said, it's a joke, of course, but, yeah. Uh, yeah. but it worked out in that he didn't have kids, to, you know, to take care of at home. Um, and so he was able to do that. Oh, we do have some younger kids, but I also have one who's uh, 21 years old. So um, we can kind of mix it up and and uh, have some babysitting, you know, built in and stuff. Yeah. So yeah. it was okay for him, for me to take this at this time in my life. You know? Sure. Sure. So I, I don't have children myself, but I'd be out in the road and uh, this one particular band, I'd be in some city that I would never normally visit. And I'm like, we're not playing until tonight. Sound check's pretty late. I'm going to go explore the city. Who's coming? And everyone's like, nah, man, I'm sleeping in in my hotel room. I'm thinking, 
Right. What, what, what a waste. They're going, no, you don't get it, man. I, I don't oh. get to sleep in, so I'm going to do right. that right now. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the tech gig can, like I said, it can start at 7 a.m. even, you know, and if you're driving from one place to the next, you know, then it can it can be that you're on a tour bus all night. Um, I don't I don't love that, but again, it's at Billy Idol. The tour bus is fine. You know, it's not a van. It's a tour bus yeah. with all the amenities on it. Um, some of the guys even have riders. You know, I, I, this guy needs almond milk every day for his shakes, and he yep. gets it. You know, it's yep. like it's a very easy group. You know, to get along with. It's it's. I'm not saying it's cushy. It is a lot of hard work still. So I don't mean to downplay uh, the amount of effort that's associated with it. But it is. Uh, you know, we're we're all we're all right. This is an okay gig to pick up. Um, yeah, and. Uh, you know, it's never, it's never too bad. Always in hotels, you know, so you have your hotel room or whatever. It's just the occasional time you might have to drive from one gig to the next gig. But it was only like two or three times on the, all these legs that we did with them where there was two gigs in a row every day and not a day off in between. So like you said, day off in between, I'm going to visit a guitar store. I'm grabbing Steve's guitar, putting a new three-way toggle switch in it, you know, and that's how you like, you know, how do you create the opportunities? There was a Alaska, a store in Alaska. Mammoth, I think, uh, if I remember correctly. Um, and, um, you know, it was like, uh, hey, can I come down there and put it, use your bench and buy a three-way switch because this one's not working, you know, in this guitar. And sure, come on down. You know, I spent the day hanging out with them and uh, I bought a an old used Japanese Fender guitar neck from them that I have now, you know. Um, just get out there, do your thing, you know, like I said, be... Be interested, you know, in, in in what's going on, and you'll find the opportunities. Well, it is a great opportunity, isn't it, to to actually see some of the world that you normally wouldn't go to, and get paid for the privilege. That's absolutely, yeah. That's the crazy part, you know. I was saying to, even to the man, the manager, um, like the it's the the woman who's kind of runs the business side of of Idol, you know. And I was like, you know, these like uh, repaired the headstock on the one guitar. It was a good hand, and I did it in the hotel room. And I was just talking to her and I was like, yeah, I'm not, you know, I'm not sending a bill for a headstock repair. I could, you know, a headstock repair is X amount of dollars. I said, but that's a paid day off. What am I, you know, what am I going to do? Say, oh, it's a paid day off. I better be, you, that means you better let me be by the pool and then I'll charge you for this thing that I'm going to do, you know, the next day or something. I'm like, it's crazy. Of course, you know, I'll work, you know, and, and, and do that stuff on the day off. Um, but I can understand these guys who've done it for 10, 20 years wanting to take a paid day off and have it be a day off like you said they are just like hey i'm sleeping in yeah you know yeah so i get it i i totally get that yeah frank i was just looking at my notes as we were talking before um mm -hmm. and we we're talking about like the radio interference and stuff like that mm -hmm. uh power conditioning is that something that the rigs you work with do they have power regulators and stuff in there and they how important are they I think it's important. He had been using a Variac on the Freedmans at some point uh, for a long time where he was running them, I think, once they 118 or something. Oh, really? But he did, yeah, but he did put in a Furman, and we're just using that. Um, so there's a Furman conditioner, and then above it, we have another Furman strip that really is just sitting there. We're not really using the power outlets for it. It's just sitting there because it has a voltage readout. And so I'm looking at it. You know, it's 120, 123 in the worst-case scenario, but the conditioner is supposed to kind of you know, um, even, even that out a little bit, but then, like I said, the, the, the reader is after the condition. So I can really, I can tell what's really going on. Um, but if anything got too out of whack, it would have been, uh, that the conditioner is going to knock it down. You know, it'll make sure it won't get up too high. Um, 
So there is, uh, everyone wishes they had, there's a Japanese, I can't recall the name of it, but there's a, a box that, you know, Angus Young has. I saw that. Yeah. 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 You basically, you could put a, hook up a firefly's butt to the back of it and it'll still power up your whole rig, you know, yeah. or you could hit, get hit by a Thor lightning bolt, you know, and it'll still just give you that 118. Um, or 120 or whatever you set it to but um nobody really can nobody justifies that it's a tough one to justify it's many thousands of dollars you know just to have this what looks like a air conditioning unit or something you know yeah to to basically give you that beautiful power out of the other side but we did just do that jimmy kimmel show and that was the first time we didn't have any regard for our power drops we didn't have our power drops where we have individual things like so steve's rig is all off of the same power i can tell you that so then i have there's a different distro to billy morrison or bass or whatever so everything from steve's all comes from there i could plug his pedal board up front into a closer outlet but i can't you know i run that it comes all the way back to the rig and everything's off of one drop um, is there a reason so, for that does that uh contribute yeah, to just, better ground loop uh, exactly yeah. yeah it just minimizes risk that's all yeah. you know you could do it you could get away with it but if everything's off of one source then it just minimizes that risk they know that you have some dirty power um or, or voltage potentials you know between between some stuff i'll have to keep that in mind i've got a really cool multi-core um that's got power and midi and five lines switching systems uh, cables and everything um uh, which is great the fact that it sends power down there as well so i can run it yeah. off the same i'm going to keep that in mind and utilize that just to yeah yeah and steve has big looms that go down there so i'm i'm running cable that's like you know this big around you know two, yeah. two of these basically oh, two, two yeah two of those down there yeah to the rig and then there's a big jump you know between the two but um uh, yeah, so I'm, run, I'm running a lot of stuff, you know, back and forth, but it all takes its power from back at the, uh, back at the rig. Nice, nice. Yeah. I've had somebody throw in a question there. Uh, favorite guitar tones? Oh, my gosh. Well, <laughs> I, so I, am, uh, I love tube tones, and yet I am also a giant fan of King's X. And Ty Tabor uses those Lab Series amps. Now he's on some orange stuff. Uh, those tones are great. I may not try to get those tones from solid state gear, but he's he makes amazing sounds. So as far as ear candy, which is another albums, but as far as you know, um, what I like to hear, uh, I love King's X. I love Stevie Ray style tones. Uh, a lot of mid gain. I'm not a big fan of super high gain sounds. It's fatiguing to me a little bit. Um, I like a lot of single coil, split coil stuff. Personally, um, as a guitarist though. Uh, I'm all over the map. Like I said, I have a million preamps in the rack up there, all these different sounds. My thing was always like I wanted to get every sound. I wanted all the sounds that I want, you know, available at my fingertips. So that's and that's what's been part of my product development life, you know, is that I design a lot of gear. A lot of it is even stuff that I would never use, but I design a lot of different sounding gear for a lot of different types of artists. And so I can be good enough to um, play anything for like 30 seconds and then i'm out you know i can't i'm not i'm not that good of a guitar player but i can pretend like i am for a while but i can test the gear you know i can um i can i can play you know like mick thompson and slipknot for a few minutes you know if i have to to see if that cabinet is shaking this the way it's supposed to shake and uh, i can play fast for a little while if i have to play fast but um 
but yeah, so I'm kind of like the fan of all different kinds of guitar tones. I, I actually love a lot, you know, a lot of different sounds. It's hard for me to, you know, to pin that, to pin that down. Yeah. You know, it's Personally. funny you're talking about not really liking uh, too heavy a guitar sound. Man, a lot of guys use a lot of gain, too much gain, uh, I'm finding. Um, and that's I, kind of a pet peeve for me in like a bar or club band. You know, it's like, man, you know, you're using twice the gain that the guy did when he made the album. Yeah. You know, and that hits my ears a little, you know, eh, you know, I, that's that's a little fatiguing. But, you know, I think guys, they'll use it as a little safety net. So, you know, I understand it. You know, it makes them feel better as they're up there being vulnerable, playing to, you know, 100 people. Yeah. Um, but you're right. Yeah. I'm, I'm I've for a long time, I've been a reduced gain guy. I have. Uh, I probably played, you know, high gain in 1989 a lot, you know, shredded up, you know, cranked the gain up to the maximum, but that was 89. Yeah. But now you've got all these amps, you know, like your 5150s, uh, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So, sort of take, they, they were like some of the first ones that came out where it was just a ridiculous amount of gain. I right. just don't think you need that much. Um, you don't. No. And, the, and you lose clarity. Like that, yeah. You, yeah. you lose clarity. I, I, yeah. I've got a Kemper one of the stage units recently just to there's a lot of gigs around here where you can't use amps so i'll, I'll take right. that along right and i tried going through thousands of profiles trying to find the right ones and when mm-hmm. it came time to getting uh the high gain stuff i just found there's no definition in that i can't make out right. it's just it's too chewy too squishy mm-hmm. so one great thing i find with the kemper is i can take a, an amp uh and i think i'm using uh, i bought an acdc pack by Top okay. Jimmy, uh, and it's the same profiles that one of the guys from the Alice Cooper band's using, and okay. and you get that ACDC kind of gain. But then mm-hmm. with the Kemper, you can crank the gain 100%. and give it yeah. more gain than what that amp would yeah. normally deliver. I couldn't I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah, I, and I'm I, finding I'll, I'll, I like that much better to take yeah. that style of amp, give it a bit more gain than it normally would, than using. Oh, I've got a Bogner Ecstasy one there. I've got fifty on fifties, etc. Yeah, I'll send you some profiles that I made, um, and I did them with amp combining, preamp combining again out of one speaker. Yeah, but multiple gain stages. You know, like like I said, where a more saturated mid range and less distortion on the highs and lows. Um, even some that combine like a hair of the Rockman distortion generator where you don't really hear it in there but it's some glue that kind of holds it together yeah i will tell you this that was where i learned uh one by making a profile lower gain like you said using the gain knob on the kemper to interpolate what would happen if i gained that amp up that was a little the kemper is is like it's smarter at doing that than it is at taking a capture of an extremely high gain amp Mm. right or or it might be smarter um, from a processing standpoint but sounded better Right, it was improved sound. Yep. So I liked that better. Uh, but then uh, the other thing that I was able to figure out was some then the limitations of the capture from the Kemper because I'd have once you had like mul- like a very dense sort of multi-gain, st- you know, a, a composite setup, um, the Kemper would homogenize that back down into like a sound. Uh, but it would still be a little more dynamic than if you didn't do it that way. So I created this patches that, again, you can roll your guitar volume down and it's a little bit more dynamic 
through that whole range. And I'll, I'll, I'll send them to you or send you a link. I don't know. Please do. Please do. They're on. Yeah. They're somewhere. But so it was interesting that I could simultaneously like figure out how to sort of expand the dynamic range of the Kemper and then realize like the limitations, you know, Um, like I had some sounds where you had almost a clean sound living in with the dirty sound and that, that was gone in the profile. It was, it wasn't even there. Um, But the refinement procedure is obviously critical you know, because then I could just sit there and just work on that in that refined setting, string raking a lot, you know, just like Stevie Ray style stuff where you're like, man, that cabin is doing something and the Kemper didn't learn it yet, you know. And so you got to spend the time when you're making the profiles to mess around with that stuff. But once you had that dialed in, like I said, if I take that gain above 12 o'clock to three o'clock, um, you know, then I had I, there was some, some really great sounds in there. Cool. You know? And I, I take it you've you've tried all the the various modelers, Helix, Axe Effects, etc. Yeah. Um, what, what's your yep. favorite out of them? Um, the the Kemper. Once I started to be able to do that stuff with it, I was like, okay, I can live with this. Uh, the uh, the newest Axe Effects is great. The Quad Cortex is great. Um, I haven't gotten into like multiple signal paths. I haven't really done anything with the Quad Cortex except listen to Steve use it and sound check with it. So I haven't been the guy behind the wheel on that. Um, but if you can, you know, if you can take some of that model, you know, if, if you can do amp combining within a modeler, I think you can stretch it out too. You know, if I have two signal paths, like the quad cortex would boast to be able to do, if I could take two signal paths and I've got two amps and one's like a cranked up fender and the other one's, a, you know, not all the way dirty Marshall or something. If those two things are able to live together, the test of a, of a, of a piece of gear like that often is in the digital domain, do those two things live together in the way they would have in an analog domain? Or is there a lot of commonality? So uh, not to diss the amps at all, but like Yamaha had those modeling amps that were kind of a, a outgrowth of the little ones that they had, you know, the little TH, whatever that, THRs or something like that. Um, and they had like two amp channels that you could have on at the same time. I spent some time working with that. And by the time you combine those two, you it was there was almost no you just were listening to like one model that where you push the sound a little bit in one direction or the other. And that's because it's just the way that they're creating those sounds, right? There's a homogenous, you know, homogenous nature to that. Uh, and so it didn't really do that. It didn't open up um, the dynamic range. It didn't open up the sound for me at least. Um, but on the Kemper, like I said, I was able to stretch it a little bit and hopefully the quad cortex gives you that ability. Nice. I'm yet to play with the, the quad cortex. I've had all the others and um, yeah. I've gone for full circle and come back to Kemper. Um, one thing I do notice, though, as opposed to a real tube amp, what works well on a bridge pickup might sound completely terrible as soon as you go to the neck pickup. And that, that won't happen right. on the on the, the tube amp. And, That's correct. Yeah. And I, I don't know why that is. Uh, and that it's there's the even same some reason. Of it's the same reason that a drive pedal in front of a modeler doesn't behave the same. It's because the modeler is putting ones and zeros, you know, I know it sounds cliche, but the modeler is applying an overlay, you know, it's p- applying a process to the sound that you're putting into it. If I drive a tube amplifier with a boost pedal or a drive pedal or something like that, I have interplay, you know, the electrons come in, they're still in the analog domain and they change sort of what's happening with the tubes. It's, it's this reactionary thing. And so, yeah, like you said, you know, if I just put up this sort of 2d 
image on top of that bridge pickup and I switch to the neck pickup, you're right. The, an, an actual tube amp would be somewhat adaptive, you know, in nature to the sound that it was receiving on the front end. And I find that the modeling stuff doesn't do that or doesn't do it to as great of an extent. I'm not a, I don't work for one of those companies. Maybe the guys, if someone was listening to me from Kemper or from, you know, Neural right now, they would be like, no, no, it does. We actually program that in, you know, you're, you're dead wrong. You know, I, we have algorithms for that. And it's, you know, that may very well be true. And so, uh, like I said, I'm not dissing it, but that's, that's how I could, that's the only way I can explain it, right? Is that you have basically a cutoff between your AD converter and what's happening in the modeler. You have basically like a brick wall. And if you put a tube screamer in front of that, it's not doing the same thing. It's not a pass through. Yeah. Yeah. You have the sound of a tube screamer and you have the sound of a Marshall modeler overlaid on top of it, not, not mixed in with it, not reacting to it, you know, especially that part of the biofeedback loop where you're standing in front of a 112, letting a note ring out. It's definitely been cut off, you know, from that. That's to say that you can't get that feedback or that feel. It's just different. It's not, you know, it doesn't create the same user experience. Uh-huh. Uh, there's a question there from somebody wanting to know your personal string gauge preference. Hmm. I, since I was a kid, I've always been a light top, heavy bottom. Yep. So if it's nines, it's nine to 46. If it's 10, it's 10 to 52 or 56. And, you know, 11s would be high up into the fifties. Um, and, but I play a lot of concert pitch, not a lot of E flat or anything. So, you know, just like 10 to 52 in E and, uh, that's just been my thing. Now, as time's gone by, there's been people who come out with balanced string sets like string source where, they work out so that all the strings are perfectly gauged so that there's the same amount of tension between them. And what we found out was that like a 10 to 46 is actually a little lighter on the bottom so that a balanced tension of 10s would have been like 48. So then I feel kind of, you know, vindicated that I like 10 to 52, you know, and that I like a heavier bottom because it is, those always felt lighter to me on the bottom. A 9 to 42 felt lighter to me on the bottom. There was times Eddie Van Halen used 9 to 40. Great. Mm. That's his thing. Yep. Um, in, in E flat, no less. Uh, but it wasn't for me. I always like a heavier bottom, um, not even necessarily for drop tuning or drop D, but just, you know, a heavier, heavier low strings. And I was talking to my friend, um, actually the guy who does string source, and he was like, but wouldn't you want to balance? He's like, this was how he phrased it. He was in his mind, and he's not wrong, mind you. He says, you know, he's like, don't, he goes, if you're playing a Les Paul with a shorter scale, your strat, right? 10 to 50, uh, let's say you're 10 to 50, or let's say you're 9 to 46 on a strat. You should want to be 10 to 52 on a Les Paul or something, right? In other words, yep. you wouldn't you want the tension to be the same? Yep. And then he was like, he was saying like, and you have one guitar that's tuned to E, one guitar tuned to E flat, shouldn't you want 9.5 on the E flat guitar, right? Or 10.5 on the E flat. And I was like, no, because for me, this again, this is just me. And maybe and we, we boiled it down to like, it might be because I have, uh, you know, pitch, you know, it's, he'd call it perfect pitch, but you know, like I have that in me, it might be that when I hear that sound, like I don't like using drop pedals either, right? Like a thing that's going to drop me half yeah, up. Yeah. Hate it, hate it. Because the interplay, right? Like I grab a str if I grab a strat with ten to fifty six tuned to E standard, it's because I want to feel it feel that way. And if I pick up, if I put that guitar down and I grab the Floyd Rose guitar with nine to forty six tuned to E flat, even I want that to feel that way. Like when I play an E flat, whatever the string gauge was, I've, it should feel slackier in E flat to me. If yeah. I hear the E flat as the note 
the string should be easier to squeeze, right? That's just what my brain does, you know? Uh, so, so that's, like I said, balance tension, I like. So I can still play balance tension. I like that, you know, when, if something is nine to 44 and they have like a half gauge in there somewhere in between, that doesn't bother me. That feels kind of good to me. Uh, but normally, no, a progressively heavier bottom uh, is what feels good to me. And I've been into multi-scale guitars since Novak came out with them in the 90s. I was friends with him back then. And we used to talk about all this stuff, the clang tone and the, you know, all the all the theories behind it. And so I was I was good buddies with him and I loved multi-scale guitars, even made some of my, my own back then. Uh, that always made sense to me. Again, as a light top heavy bottom guy, I'm like, no, 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 give me more tension. Give me more length on the low strings. Um, than I do have, you know, on the high string. So that was, that was what my, my, you know, Cool. That, now you, you mentioned that the whole drop pedal thing. Um, yeah. I tried, I bought the whole Variax, um, set up about oh, maybe four years ago or something thinking this is yeah. going to be great. Uh, I, right. play flat, yeah, uh, I play with that many different artists. Yeah. I play with that many, that many different artists that this, this band likes to, you know, tune normal. This one's a toned down. This one, you know, I thought, oh, one guitar. What I what didn't count on was the fact yeah. that um, you hear a lot through bone con conductivity. Oh, yeah. Yep. And if you're wearing earplugs, yeah, right. I'm hearing it's this dissonance. And I can remember doing a, yeah. uh, a drop D tune. And mm -hmm. I, I want everyone out there to try this. Tune your guitar like standard and then try right. and play as if you're playing in drop D and feel right. it. Feel that dissonance in your fingers. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yep. I'm playing with this band and I'm doing a rehearsal and I'm just looking at the guys going, sorry, guys, I, I butchered that. I don't know what I was doing wrong. And they're like, right. going, it sounded fine. I'm going, right. no, I don't know what I was doing wrong there. I just... I said, no, it's and it right. gets down, it's even down to the temper tuning. Like how, you know, people are like, um, you know, shouldn't you use compensated nuts or whatever? Like, yeah, I get it. Compensated nuts are cool. Um, and they actually do work. Um, I've been playing my way long enough that I've got to squeeze, you know, we sort of, we change how we squeeze notes as well because we're listening for, especially with distortion, like you say, we're listening for those notes to stop beating against one another. And it's just this innate, you know, bio connection between our, like you said, bone conductivity, uh, everything, you know, even feeling, you know, and then feeling the sound pressure levels from the amplifier, if it's on or in ears, if you have ears in, um, but dude, you're totally right. And it's like, you're like, this is out of tune. And, but you might go back and listen to the track and you're like, no, it actually was in tune, you know? So yeah, yeah I, that's why I'm saying I can't, you know, the other I would rather spend a second and retune. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing that really gets me when I'm wearing earplugs is how loud a pickup selector switches through through my bones. Like yeah. when I change pickups, yeah. I and, yeah. and I'm talking playing at deafening levels, I can hear right. clear as a bell. Tink. Oh yeah. Tink. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Uh, the other thing that got me about that guitar, and you mentioned playing through uh, using piezo pickups, is yep. that um, if you're using the trim and you pull yep. back and that trim happens to hit the body, mm. clunk the hugest oh, yeah. clunking sure. sound. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and Steve uses his tram on the Floyd with the piezos, but it's recessed and he's never coming in contact, you know, with anything. Um, I'm going to switch. I'm going to run out of battery, so I'm going to pull this, and hopefully you'll still have my audio. That's fine. That's fine. You. If it drops out, you can always always use That's the right. link to come yeah, back in. Back. Yep, yep. And do you hear me now? I can hear you, yes. 
Yep. No? Yep. No echo either, so that's fine. Gotta love the modern technology. Oh, he's gone. He's gone, but he'll be back. Ooh, has that switched to my laptop camera? Hello, Frank. Let me just add him back in there. There you are. Bang. Perfect. Yeah, back. Boom. Uh, yeah, and hopefully it sounds okay, and you're not hearing your echo, you know, coming. No, nah, no echo. I, I did realize as okay. soon as we started that um, something went went amiss. I normally use uh, a hard connection to my internet when I'm doing these instead of uh, Wi-Fi. I tried to do that, and it wasn't working. We had our carpets cleaned recently. I think something's been pulled out. So there's been like a hint of like a ring modulator sound on your voice that came oh, and go. Really? Yeah, it was at the start. It was there. Nothing, nothing to worry about. I, I uh, would have okay. got you to log out and look back in, but it, if you right. were to look back at this, you'd go, oh, didn't know about that, but it yeah. wasn't worth mentioning. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, so it's not a monk. I'm not like a, one of those monks who can produce like the multiple tones when I you know, speak or anything like that. Is it like you're, you're talking about, but there's a name for that. Yeah, like I, I don't know what it is. Tuvan throat like, singing. Tuvan throat like, Yeah, yeah. So for those of you listening who are still with us, that's not what I was doing early on. It's an internet-based uh, issue. <laughs> yeah, that is that is really cool, that that style of singing. What's not so cool yeah. is internet issues. Frank, I just want to ask yeah. you about yeah. uh, Falbo Guitars, mate. We haven't touched on that. True. Yeah, yeah, how did you start your own guitar company? So I had, a, I, I had an acoustic bridge design that I had long before I went to go work for Seymour Duncan. And... It was, it's a unique design that manages torque. It basically undoes the forward torque on an acoustic guitar bridge. And uh, by just stringing it in such a way that introduces the string tension is do, providing negative torque at the same time. So it's a balanced torque arrangement and the acoustic guitar top can now vibrate in a more, uh, um, more of an excursion pattern, right? And we, and it's actually less dipole vibration and more monopole vibration. And, and that's usually just, something that just to jump yeah. in there would that solve the problem what you're talking about the the problem of a lot of guitars developing a bit of a belly on one side it does it, it does okay does. yeah now that's not its main intent yep. um but uh but that is a byproduct product of it uh so but that belly that you see you know that when the strings are on the acoustic are vibrating right they're vibrating like this so they're actually sort of putting into the top out of phase vibrations so the area by your sound hole has got some out of phase information than the area behind the bridge but together they convolute and you get this mix and you get your sound and that's why when you move a microphone around on an acoustic there's really thin spots super boomy spots i don't have that because my top is vibrating more in sync um and so when i went to seymour duncan they wrote a technology agreement for me uh, very kindly of them, which was, you know, all the inventions that I had had prior to working for Seymour Duncan belonged to me. And then anything I invented when I worked for them, of course, would belong to them. And that's fair. And that's how it should work. Yep. Um, but the acoustic guitar bridge was one of them. And so again, as I was sort of nearing my time uh, finishing up at, at Seymour Duncan, um, and, you know, th that doesn't really need a lot of explanation other than to say I'm very innovation forward. I want to see new products, new things coming out, you know, I'm always kind of working on new things. When I started at Seymour Duncan, they were releasing about five or six new products a year. We went up to about 20 new products a year for the whole, like, five years in a string. 
you know, and, uh, and then when I left, they kind of gone back down to just a few new products a year. And that sort of fits their appetite. And they are a legacy company. They've been around forever. These, most of what makes them top sellers in their industry is stuff that Seymour did, you know, in the seventies. Right. I mean, yep. it's like, that's a lot of what, and I'm not revealing like confidential sales information, you know, but I can't yep. tell you how many of this one sold versus that one or anything yeah. like that. Yeah. But it's a safe assumption just based on looking at what's going on on the internet. If you haven't been living under a rock, that the JBs and the 59s and the, you know, the stuff that came from their legacy is what is still remains their top sellers today. Uh, P-Rails being an exception for uh, a period of time, blackouts were an exception as well. They sold a lot of blackouts when they came out. Um, and so there have been some, some breakthroughs, of course. Um, but that's the, that's how they do their product development. And so, you know, I came in sort of as a change agent and I was able to do that uh, for a period of time, but it was starting to just look like, you know, this really isn't the play. And, you know, and, and that technology that became the Fluence technology, right? To pass on that was like, man, how do you, you know, where do I, how, how, where do I go now forward if I'm sitting around thinking that that's the future? of pickups, you know, and that's why I work for the leading pickup company in the industry. So it was very, you know, I had to, I had to sort of rectify all of that, but the acoustic bridge design was in that technology agreement, but it was also, and this is again, completely fair. It was part of like, uh, you know, they would have right, right of first refusal to use it or something like, you know, those kinds of things, which is again, P rails that we licensed P rails to them, you know, uh, and so it was in that agreement. So if I wanted to see anything done with that acoustic bridge design, just like if I wanted to see anything done with that technology that became Fluence, uh, I knew I'd have to leave the company. And so or we orchestrated that. Fallible Guitars comes out. I do the acoustic guitar bridge. It translates to hollow bodies. So I have a hollow body as well. And then I have a unique way that I translate it into solid bodies where I have a wraparound sort of Les Paul Jr. style, you know, wraparound bridge where the strings go in and they anchor to the body in such a way that they counteract the forward torque on the on the bridge studs, the string energy is actually pushing back on the top of those bridge studs. Wow! So the now the result is like if to get that magic between you and your sort of Les Paul Junior, if your amp had to be on seven, where I'm giving you that magic at four. You know, it's yep. there, it's really a res, it's really responsive to SPL. Uh, takes a little bit less energy to get a longer amount of sustain, um, and we're driving the body even though it's a solid body and everyone will tell you, oh, the wood, you know, you'll hear sometimes the wood doesn't matter or whatever. Um, so it's a solid body, but I'm getting more resonant. I'm driving more vibrations into the body in phase. Uh, so the electric guitar solid bodies actually still have a different feel to them. You know, they feel more like even you could, you could describe it as, uh, you know, a 50, another, a 50 year old guitar where the wood's kind of been broken in, but I'm able to get you that, you know, out of a brand new instrument. Nice. Nice. You know? And oh, yeah. that, so um, I was going to ask you about with your Falbo guitars, is there uh, production models or is it purely a custom job? Most come to you? Do, yeah, most of what I do right now is custom stuff. Yep. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of one-offs and it's because I'm busy with it. Uh, so I just get bogged down and busy trying to do, you know, one, two, three special things for different people at a time. Yep. Um, so I do take, you know, custom orders. And then when time allots, then we'll have the, you know, you do the five piece runs and 10 piece runs and stuff like that, where, you know, you got a bunch of uh, boxes like Les Paul Jr.'s types or the 
uh, offset jazz master types and stuff like that. You know, uh, sometimes I'll do those in runs where I do put a batch out. Um, but a lot of, you know, I just keep getting inundated with the requests, you know, for custom stuff. So I don't like saying no, because as a product guy, I'm always wanting to do something different, you know, yep. something new, you know, the guy I'm talking to just last night, it's a Louis Vuitton paint job, you know, on the, on a multi-scale guitar. And because a handbag has like leather piping, there's going to be roasted, you know, wood body revealed through the, you know, Louis Vuitton paint job and maybe some, some purfling as to mimic stitching and stuff like that. And those kinds of things just get me energized, you know, so I really like doing that, but, um, but I do, I really do. I need to, I mean, we're talking about it. I need to put out five, 10 of stuff, you know, at a time and do some runs and get them out there. Yep. Um, Cause by all indications uh, they would sell, you know, if I did it. Um, and do you have a, a list of, um, of options or is it purely, what you want will build. You don't have like a base model. Or... Yeah. I, I, some, I mean, I do a lot of guiding, you know, so people ask me for advice on something. Um, but I do have a full factory. I mean, it's CNC paint booth, you know, all the equipment, everything. So there's very little that I wouldn't be able to do, but if I turn someone down, it's going to be because, um, you know, it just doesn't fit sort of into my time profile or expense profile. Right. Yeah. Um, You're at the factory yeah, now, aren't you? Yeah and say yes. Are you I am, yeah. yeah. Are you, how do you feel about giving us a bit of a look around? Uh, I can. I hope we don't lose battery if I do. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I can. Let me, let's, let's try. Let me, let's try. Yeah, let's try. Whoops. That's not what I want to see. I want to see that. There we go. Okay. Let me unhook this. And uh, what I don't know is if I can, let's try to flip this around. Let's see. Front camera. And I'm going to switch to back camera. So now you have this, I presume. Yeah. I've got just a blank screen, just black. Okay. Give me one second. All right. Hang on. Uh, now I'm gonna. I should be back. Yep. There we are. Yep. Right. That's it, mate. And so this is. That's what my CNC looks like. It happens to have a jig in it right now for cutting necks. Nice. Um, but it's a forty twenty table. Uh, well, you can see this monster bit in there. Ooh. That's for carving the back of the neck. Yeah, that's pretty pretty serious, and some other pretty serious bits in here. And then there's some also like some really little tiny guys, you know. Yeah. Um, but that's a 21 tool changer. I feel like you know, I feel like I wouldn't want to do a CNC if I didn't have the tool changer. I have programs where I'm running, you know, four, five, and sometimes eight tool changes within one program. Wow. Yeah, and so that to me is where it's at. I know a lot of a lot of smaller luthier shops are working with the individual, you know, like a router head sitting on top of a you know a CNC, um, you know, uh, a XYZ table, and I and I, I don't know I, I that to me it would be almost like I would rather just route stuff by hand, you know. This way I can sort of design anything I want and it'll end up you know being able to cut it in one operation. Um, nice. Just by having a lot of different tool changes and things like that, things yep. of that nature. Um, let's see, a lot of wood over here, a lot of wood over here in bodies. Um, there's a junior style body over there. There's some hollow bodies. Uh, everything looks like it's covered in dust because it gets covered in dust in about five minutes. So yeah, I bet. Uh, <laughs> big old bandsaw that I love. Uh huh. Um, 
edge sander. We spend a ton of time on this guy. Yeah. Uh, just shaping things like crazy. Yep. Um, thickness sander. Um, you know, for thicknessing body blanks and, oh, yep. and yep. tops and things like that. Um, this is sort of a neck carving station. Mm -hmm. Shinto rasp. I love this tool. Uh, this guy here. Oh, wow. That will take some wood off fairly quickly. It's a, um, it's uh, it's like having a bunch of saw blades together, bolted together. Yeah, right. Okay. Uh, in an X pattern. Yeah. Um, even these little rasps, I'll, you know, roto rasps I'll use. A bunch yep. of files down here. Um, but they go, it goes on this, on this stick, right, up into the headstock. And then I can carve, you know, the neck that way. Um, so you do a lot of hand carving of necks. I do, I do. I have CNC programs for them, and I do it. But necks, you, necks are won and lost, you know, in the hand carving. You can't really. People talk a lot about how a machine will pop out a guitar part, and it really doesn't. There's a ton of work that needs to be done uh, after that point. Um, but yeah, a neck you can't really, you can't get the feel of a neck coming off of a machine. You really just can't. Uh, so I do. Yeah, I do a lot of hand carving of necks. This is a junior style that'll end up with two Fluence P90s and a Fluence humbucker. That's a limba, like a black limba top, nice. but roasted limba for the for the back. Oh, um, which is kind of cool. You don't see much roasted limba out there in the world, but uh, sure enough, I have it. And then another buddy of mine. I don't make tellies and stuff. Yeah. But this friend of mine sent me um, this like ancient cowrie wood, which is you know thousands and thousands of years old, and said, "Can you please cut me a telly out of it?" And so this what you know whatever tree this came from. Um, it's, it, it, you know, it's thousands upon thousands of years old. Um, that's a fun one. Uh, baritone neck over here. Uh, this is the Japanese fender neck that I got when I was in Australia. I'm refretting that. I do and like Japanese you guys, fenders. Oh, they're so great. Yeah. I mean, I'm a big fan of Japanese stuff in general, Yeah, but, um, just the, they put the time in, into it. You know, I know that that's, I know that that can be sort of a gross oversimplification, but you know, if we're making these sort of broad statements about, you know, uh, the Ibanez factory, the Fujigen factory, you know, throughout the eighties or whatever, yeah. um, they really did, you know, put the time in and they really just, you know, it's like they went to work every morning, just trying to really do the, do their best and make the best instruments and design Man. the best instruments. I had a Japanese and, flatmate for a while, and his attention to detail, he was training to be a chef, yes. and he would practice yes. every night, and he'd sharpen yep. his knives every night. Just the attention yeah. to detail was just ridiculous. Yeah, yeah and, and again, you know, you hate to make generalizations. They don't hold true, but, uh, you know, in every in every instance, but it's really just, it's, it is a generalization that I can make. You know, after having owned a jillion guitars, mm -hmm. I can tell you. You know, there's something about that. So those Japanese fenders came from that same place. Um, that's the paint booth. I happen to have a guitar in here right now. This is an Ed Klein. I bought a body and a neck from him. It's the Flaxwood people, right? Look at this. And Yeah. And so hollowed out, you know, in the back and you put a plate on it. And so I'm, I bought a body and a neck from him. I'm painting it. It's just something I wanted to do for myself. Um, but I put in a block of wood to have that that um, bridge that I was telling you about, where I have the you know the negative torque in yeah. in the in the wraparound bridge, and I could do that by buying a blank body from him. Um, now, sadly, he had actually just recently passed away. I don't know what it was of, um, but you know he had, like I said, I was lucky enough to score uh, this from him. He's a great great guy. 
Um, so that's me painting that. Here's a bunch of extra paint. Um, I do use, for my clears, I use a UV cure poly. So this is my UV curing oven. Oh, wow. Yep. And so you have three bulbs. They're 400 watts. Uh, it'd be nice if I had more lights in there, but those three bulbs are enough. They do the job. And uh, so I don't have, you know, I have no complaints really about it. Um, but that's kind of my paint setup is, uh, is the UV cure stuff. So, um, and then here's that neck. One thing about that flaxwood stuff, right, is he didn't, they didn't have, uh, I, with the neck I got from him had no fret slots. And oh. so I rigged it up. I put it in my CNC. I rigged it everything up. And so now I have the only one with pocket fret slots. So the fret slots stop before the edge of the neck. Oh, okay. For that sort of faux binding thing. Yeah, yeah. And so that's basically, now I'm, you know, I'm the only guy with one of those. What did you call that? A pocket fret slot? Yeah, pocket fret. Yeah, so that it doesn't go all the way to the end. Okay, yeah, that's so. I, I've never seen that. Yep. This is one of Mike Inez's bases. We took, uh, we made him signature pickups. And, cool. Uh, but then on some of his bases, I'll I'll fill in the old pickups routes, route for the soap bar, and then go back and refinish it. So this is kind of in the middle of a refin where, you know, going to kind of try to maintain this reverse burst that he had on there. Um, buffing wheels, you know how those work. Yep. Uh, turn them on, they spin, they buff stuff out. Um, drill presses and things. This is buffing frets. Holy cow. So step on this switch. And that's my wheel for buffing frets. That's a secret. That's my, not a, it's not a secret, but I mean, it's like, a, uh, you know, it's a, it's a hot tip. Um, that is a definitely a secret to getting really high shine on, on frets. If you tape off the fingerboard, you know, you tape off between each fret, yep. do your polishing work, and then take them to the wheel. Um, that's, 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 you know, it's a huge difference, huge improvement. Uh, drill press from the old days, right? I find, I love old tools. You know, they're just made differently. Um, this thing weighs a ton and uh, I love it. You know, so I do a lot of small stuff on there. Uh, what else can I show you? I have a climate room in the back. So this is where, so we keep the wood, um, like for wood storage, right? Oh, and it's running right now, which you can hear. Hey there, machine. Um, so I'm taking the humidity down, right? So we kind of maintain the humidity in this back room um, for wood storage. And that's pretty important. So I'll run it, you know, I like to keep it around 40% humidity level yeah. where I'm storing the wood uh, before it comes out and gets worked with. Um, otherwise, silly things like a refrigerator, which everyone knows what that looks like. <laughs> uh, this was a fun project I did. I just kind of got a, on a whim. I wanted to do, you remember the Kramer Stage Master? I don't it actually. Was, so it was a lot like an ESP Horizon. Yeah. Uh, but the contours were different. And I had always kind of wanted one, so I just took the time to draw it. You know, it kind of, kind of just self as a self, you know, teaching exercise. You know what I mean? Just to kind of, to kind of uh, stretch my skills out. So I drew this actually from scratch, but it's it's that sort of late '80s uh, Kramer Stage Master, and the contours are different from a Horizon. Uh, so if you looked at them, but there was an old ad with Eddie Van Halen holding one, and sure, sure, showed, but. I just thought the guitar was cool in the end. Sure. Frank, continue with that little bit of a tour. I just have to take yeah. off for 30 seconds. I'll be straight back. Keep showing us around if you don't Not mind, mate. Not a problem. Yeah. Well, you guys know I said 
old tools, right? So here's an old, here's, this is my table saw and it is a 1971 Powermatic where at, the, at that moment, it was their 50th anniversary. So come on, you know what I mean? Like how cool is that? It's got a new motor. Um, but yeah, so I'm a huge fan of, uh, of old, you know, old tools that were built right the first time. And uh, I just had a friend drop me off a blast cabinet. Not sure what I'm gonna do with this yet. But these are the things where like you stick your hand in the gloves and then it does um, sandblasting, you know, and bead blasting. So I have some glass beads. That's pretty good for like taking uh, taking paint off of, of hardware, you know, finishes off of hardware and things like that. Um, so you can have fun with that. Uh, what else can I show you guys? Uh, if there's anything you want to see. Thanks, Frank. Uh, I'm back. Yes, I noticed you're back. Um, I was just showing my, my table saw, which I love. Um, well, there's something about favorite tools. People just um, yeah. fall in love with certain tools and nothing will replace it. Yes. Huh? No, that's really true. Yeah. 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 My, like I said, my, my table saw is from 71, 1971, and it was their 50th anniversary when it came out. So, you know, it was great. Um, here's some Brazilian rosewood back here. That's nice to have. Uh, good work if you can get it. Nice. Um, some figured, I don't know if this will show up on camera. That's some very, very uniquely figured ebony. Yeah, right. For a fingerboard. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've never seen ebony a with a figure like that. That's... Yeah, you don't see it very often. Here's some more figured ebony, right? So that is going to be a blast uh, to make some fingerboards out of that. But, you know, other than that, it's a typical uh, typical shop. Nice Not one, right? you all want to see me, but I'm going to turn the camera around again. Yep. Let's see. Front camera. Done and done. Uh, there, there you, you are. Got me again. Yep, got you again. Right. Nice. There I am. Yeah. <laughs> All right. There's so, feeling. Uh, now you mentioned some roasted woods along the way. What are you yep. finding roasting wood? And that's a very popular thing at the moment. Uh, what does that bring? It is. It what is. does that bring to the table? Uh, what it? So when you roast it, if you do it right, what you're getting is um, you're you're ridding the wood of the. Um, the cellulose and hemicellulose, you're cooking that off. But it's also a big reduction in lignin, which is the, the sort of a binding agent, if you will. And so if a, if, if, if a piece of wood is what we might refer to as over-roasted, whether it means the temperature was too high or it was cooked for too long, mm -hmm. then what happens is it becomes very brittle. And uh, so what you have to do, in my experience is find the right balance. So I have some suppliers that I use. Uh, one mainly, you know, if he has it, uh, I'll get all my roasted woods from him because he is very good at, um, I mean, first of all, very good at selecting the wood even before it goes into the oven, but also all the big differences between the temperature and the duration, like the peak temperature, duration, how it cools off, he has all that stuff dialed in for each species, and it's for a guitar. So if you go to a, like a wood store and they have something you know called tempered or whatever you know like uh, uh, 
you know, maple or something sitting there or whatever. Uh, in my experience, you just don't know what you're going to get. So that's why I've kind of, you know, I kind of stick with, with who I, you know, with who, with who I trust. So if it's done right, then you get the cool, you know, you, you're, you're trying to approximate an old piece of wood that has since had all of its, um, you know, moisture sort of like leave the guitar, leave the piece of wood naturally. Yep. Right. And all the cellulose and heavy cellulose sort of has broken down naturally. But again, if you, if we push that process, we can get to a place where it's now brittle. And, um, I'm, and I'm glad you brought that up. I've yeah. got a guitar there with a roasted maple neck and mm -hmm. the amount of dints I have in the back of the neck is oh, yeah. ridiculous. I, I, I say that's more. Yeah. There's two, two that I feel when I'm playing. And one okay. was, I just gotten the guitar and I gave it to a friend to have a play and he, and he leaned it up against this chair I'm sitting on actually. And it right. was the, the back of it, um, the neck was leaning on it. And every time I play around the fifth fret, I tell you what, I'm cursing that guy because I could feel a dint there. And that got me really? thinking, yeah. man, I thought yeah. uh, roasted maple was supposed to be um, stable, etc. But when you say that brittleness. Yeah. yeah. And so what we don't want to do is confuse the term stable with um, like uh, strengthened, right? Or fortified. Uh, stable meaning that when the temperature, or excuse me, mostly when the humidity changes, uh, the tempered wood, right, the roasted woods, they will not expand and contract to as great of an extent. Now, this means you'd never want to necessarily use a roasted maple neck with a raw maple fingerboard because for their entire life, they're going to be doing different things to one another. Sure. But, it, but ebony already behaves differently than maple did. So actually a roasted maple neck with an ebony fingerboard, I like it. You know, it seems to work out okay. Um, if I were going to use a rich light fingerboard, right, a composite that has no expansion and contraction or no measurable expansion contraction under the temperature humidity changes, I would want to attach that to a roasted maple neck, right, or a roasted wood, you know, neck for that matter. Um, so there's times we also want to be cognizant of the combinations that you're going to do, right? Um, like I said, roasted and non-roasted glued together they're going to be doing something different now for the rest of their life. Yeah. Uh, you know, to, as you know, but they're made it together. Um, there, if you have a roasted, uh, body and a non roasted top that you've laminated to it, then you can have cupping over time. It's the kind of cupping that you would have if you did just did a lousy job matching a top to a back, right? You know, this thing, this, this one was just cut off the tree. It's still green. This one's really dry, you know, and you put them together and they all, they do something, you know, different over time. But really it's just, if you have, the, like I said, if you have a non-roasted and a roasted laminate of some form, then at some point they're going to do different things to one another. And when it comes to laminates too, a lot of people don't realize with guitar building, you know, when, once you apply wood glue to a surface, that surface expands. And so you can have cupping or growth just from the moisture from the wood glue. Then the glue dries, then the wood shrinks back to its original state before you had applied the wood glue days later or whatever, right? And so that's a problem with building guitars too quickly, right? So you glue it up, you're like, hey, the glue's dry. Okay, I'll put frets in it tomorrow. No, you have to give it time to return back to its moisture state uh -huh. uh, because you've just introduced moisture into that join. Um, or you put two pieces of wood together the, in the join, that join swole, is swollen up. So then you come and plane it off and make it smooth. Well, right there at that join, then it will shrink back because that's the part that was swollen, right? So it's almost like if you had a, 
you know, if you had a mosquito bite on your arm and then you shaved it, you know, okay. it's like, that's, you just removed stuff. Now when that mosquito bite's gone, you have a dent, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So that, there's a lot of caveats in working with roasted wood. I do like it. I do like the idea of it. You just have to really know what you're doing. Okay. So you think that particular neck that I was talking about has just been, had too much moisture removed from it or something? No, it could just be normal. I don't know. It could just be regular, um, regular roasting process this was done to it and it's just you know it is what it is it's a softer piece of wood or those dents you're experiencing you'd experience even with the wood that i buy from my yeah guy. right okay yeah but yeah the brittleness is more also that it'll just break apart okay right? so uh so if you have a you know a thin piece of something or whatever like i can go like this and it's very stiff and it'll snap and if if i have raw maple in a thin strip i can sit there and bend it and it doesn't snap okay so yep yeah now, as you were showing us around your workshop there, uh, and you mentioned the the frets, um, the, the pocketed frets, etc. That's what yeah. you called it, wasn't it? Pocketed frets. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Do you have a preference for stainless steel or standard uh, nickel? Isn't it? Are they nickel for the standard ones? Right. Yeah, yep. nickel silver. As a guitar player, I usually like nickel silver. Yep. Um, I own a lot of guitars, so I don't put a lot of playing time on one particular guitar. Much like Steve doesn't play a guitar for more than one or two songs a night. Yeah. Um, so I don't. I don't. I don't wear my frets down very, you know, quickly on specific, you know, uh, guitars, but, uh, uh, so sonically speaking, yes, yeah, stainless steel sounds different. Um, I don't like stainless steel on an acoustic guitar. There have been times when I've done a stainless refret on an, on acoustics because I have friends who will just play the heck out of them and put dents in anything that isn't stainless. Yep. In those cases, I do a partial stainless refret. So I am stainless up to like the 10th fret or so before they're going to stop wearing those frets out. Okay. And what happens there is obviously the difference between the fretless, or excuse me, the fret, the stainless and the nickel, you don't hear a difference between those two frets, right? But what is happening on a stainless, a guitar that has all stainless steel frets, as soon as you hit the strings, anytime you hit a string, the first revolution is going to clank against the fret tops. Yep. That is the, that's where stainless steel is now making that difference in the sound of the string which will make its way through electric guitar pickups and of course is really significant in an acoustic guitar. Um, so on an is, electric, yeah. yeah, on an electric, I don't mind them, you know, and I happen to be stainless as what's going in that Japanese fender neck. But, uh, so I don't mind them, but I also, I guess as a player, I pre still prefer the regular uh, nickel silver. As time goes by, I have to do more stainless fret jobs on the guitars I build because the customers want that or they're expecting it. So I do build a lot of guitars with stainless frets. Uh, the Evo Gold Fretwire from Jesscar fits somewhere in between. I really love the tone of that wire. Uh, it doesn't have the clank tone of stainless. I really love the workability of it, the way it buffs out. Um, so I really love using it. It's gold in color, which prevents me from using it on certain guitars because it just would look odd, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but otherwise, yeah, I love, I love that evil gold wire. And, you know, for any luthiers watching or people who are going to buy guitars from luthiers, there is gold hard, gold fret wire out there from other sources. And as far as I know, from what I, my sources tell me, it's not the same as the Jeskar evil gold. Um, so if you are looking for gold fret wire, just get it from Jeskar. Jeskar okay. evil is my, that's my recommendation. Cool. Cool. Now you mentioned there just the, the first revolution of the string and creating that bit of a ping. And that just got me yes. thinking, we were talking about tuning earlier. When mm -hmm. you're tuning the guitar for someone like Steve Stevens, are you, 
uh, and, and we did talk about how you m- might use a tuner first up and then sort of do some fine adjustments. Are yes. you constantly picking the string as you're tuning it or do you pick it once and let the note settle and adjust it? So I'm usually listening for just a few, just a few moments after it's been struck. Okay. Because when you hit it, it's going to go sharp for a second. Yeah, yeah. It's going to settle back in. So especially if I'm looking at a needle, I will hit it and wait for the needle to come back down, you know, because for a moment, the needle will stay up higher. Yep. Um, but if I'm tuning by ear to get to that final point, you know, in most rock songs, the person's right hand is in continual motion. Yeah, right? yeah. We're, we're not just laying a note out and just letting it ring out forever yep. um, very often. So I am tuning for the chordal rhythmic playing of the song. You know. Okay, okay. I, I think it was Thomas Nordberg, is that his name? Uh, that text Nordic. Stick, yeah. Um, that um, it was saying that he constantly picks because, well, you're constantly playing and it, and it does make it a little bit sharper. And right. I, I've right. been doing it's a bit more like of that. Something, you know, to keep it going. Yeah. Uh, again, it's that's not my thing. You know what I mean? But if he mean if he means to again, well, who is he talking for? Steve Vai. Yeah. When's the, his right hand not moving? Right. Yeah. I mean, his whole thing is picking, right? So again, that may be what has served him best in serving Steve's interests, right? As yep. a, as a as a player, and maybe during all that, he keeps picking, picking, you know, and he know he maybe maybe he puts the needle dead center there, and then the rest of the band is all in tune to that and. You know, and that's that's middle for him. You know, is constant picking. Yeah. Um, for me, yeah, I'm listening for just that, just that moment before it. You know, moment right. I should say that moment right after it it it's sharp and, and falls back into line. Yep. Uh huh. Um, yeah. Interesting, because I I did start doing that, um, constantly picking it as I was tuning, mm-hmm. and I got asked to tech for a Bruce Springsteen impersonator uh, a couple yeah, of years great. ago. And I tuned his guitar doing that. And yeah. um, he was checking his tuning as he was going. And he came up to me and said, oh, the guitars are all flat. And I'm showing him and going, no, they're not. And he's going, yes, they are. And I had to explain to him, oh, no, well, I've tuned it so that as you're strumming, because you're constantly playing rhythm guitar there, that, yes. that it would be in yeah. tune on that initial strike. And I was just interested yeah. to see your take on that. Yeah. 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 And, you know, I will say this. My biases. So where I'm sort of sweetening the tuning, um, they're all to the, they're all on the side of sharp. Um, so everything is kind of pushed up um, as you know for. But like if you hit the low E string on the guitar, it's dead on, right? Yeah. But I'm just saying some of those thirds relationships, you know, that I'm tr- trying to dial in between the B and the G string and stuff like that. Um, where they're all they're all a little bit lifted, um, but being done at the sort of more RMS state of the string, if you will, rather sure. than the peak. Yep. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Frank, I'm going to take one more question from the chat room there before I round things yeah. up, mate. And uh, this comes from Roma. He wants to know what you would recommend to someone who wants to start building guitars as a side project or a hobby. I guess um, I mean, you know, would you start off with kit guitars? Or would you try and start? Of course, yeah. The yep. easiest thing is to get bodies and necks from the same source. You don't necessarily want to get a you know, a mighty might body and a warmth neck, you can, they go together just fine. But, you know, it's nice to start with that. Uh, I found necks to be the most difficult. Um, so your next step would be to like start routing a body, you know, route the pickup cavities and make a body that you can then bolt a rig, you know, a regularly available neck onto. 
Uh, that's what I did when I was 15 or 16, you know, would make bodies and put the necks on the bodies. And then it was later that I got into making my own necks. Um, there are a lot of dual action, like two-way truss rods now that are good, that only require a straight routed slot, you know, instead of the traditional truss rod where your slot has to be arched to some perfect arch that's going to match the longevity of the instrument. I didn't know that. In with a curved thing. Yeah, like a traditional fender rod, the channel is arched, the rod is straight, they press the rod into the curved channel, they put a filler strip on top that matches the curve, the negative of the curve, so that when you tighten the rod, it brings the neck straight. Okay, um, I didn't know that. Truss rod, yeah, a dual acting truss rod is a is a stationary one on top and one on the bottom that's you know moves in and out, and so you, they're working against each other. Yeah, and so you come out a straight channel. So again, that's one of the easier things. You can buy pre-slotted fingerboards all day. You know, instead of like me, I cut my fingerboards on the CNC, including pocket frets and everything, yep. and I'm making pocket frets that match the radius of the top of the fingerboard. And I use a very complex compounded radius fingerboard surface that I designed that sort of gets a little flatter as you go up, but has a little fall away, a little bit of massaging on the higher frets, higher strings, you know. So I have all this stuff, but then I can do a fret slot that mirrors that, you know, that matches that instead of a saw blade just cutting a, you know, barbaric straight line. Sure, you know, yeah, across. yeah. And that can strengthen the fingerboard to have that arc, you know, okay. the fret slots. But for a hobby builder, yeah, the first fingerboard you use, you shouldn't slot those fret slots. It's a too much of an exacting process. It's going to be very difficult for you to buy all the equipment and start, you know, get a saw blade and stuff and saw. So buy a fret, buy a pre-slotted fingerboard or two. Uh, get going on that. If you've never done fret work, start out with refrets. Refret your inexpensive guitars. Refret your friends' inexpensive guitars if they'll let you, you know, and then work your way up, and then you can fret the guitar that you're building. Cool. Um, now speaking of frets. Um, and, and fret slots, is that something that you just, there's a universal formula that everybody uses that says, this is where it should go. Or have you calculated something yourself? Now, the reason I ask this is yeah. back in my days as a Brian May impersonator, I had, uh, the, the red special guitar that I go out and tour with. Okay. And, and okay. I, I, I kid you not, that is the only guitar that I could play. We will rock you and play the high A shape on and have that okay. perfectly in tune. Any other guitar, wow. no. Nah, you got that slight bit of dissonance happening. And wow. I know that um, Brian and his father calculated them, the, the fret positions themselves, because it's a, an odd right. uh, scale yeah, length. I can't remember right. exactly what it is. And That's it's right. like, man, you are one smart guy because that is perfect right there. Yeah. Is that something you do yourself or do you use well, the universal we, formula? Yeah, I mean, the fret slots are all based on a rule. You know what I mean? I have um, – I, I don't modify the main rule. Let's put it that way. I using that, but it's a it's a mathematical calculation, and you lay them out. And uh, you know the only thing that occasionally I will do that could be considered compensatory is that on the nut, when it comes to the nut slot, um, the bias on the nut slot is slightly uh, forward. It's slightly sharp. But we're talking about you know to the 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 thickness of pieces of paper right um <clears throat> but that's a little bit of a bias because we all come to the understanding that we're not and i'm not a fan of zero frets personally but we all come to the understanding that the nut slot itself whether it's because of the curvature of the neck or because of how deeply you cut the slots it's just a little easier to pull sharp down there in the lower register 
than it is as you walk up the neck. Even though the strings begin to get higher off the board, we now have compensation from the bridge that's now becoming a greater percentage of the string length in its total, right? In other words, if I could play an infinite fret way up close to the bridge, those intonation compensations would be their strongest. Those deltas would be the most there. And okay. when I'm down at the first fret, those adjustments at the bridge are having the smallest impact, which again sort of speaks to a compensated nut, although I just don't think it's, it's often or always needed, you know, but it's not a bad thing. Compensated nuts aren't a bad thing. But I'll also do a little compensation just with like how I cut the slots, you know, like I may have just, I, I may be a little sweeter on the G string than I am on the B, and it's not something you feel when you squeeze the strings down, but I know that I've just given you like you know, a cent or two, um, you know, a cent or two of a, of a bump, you know, when yep. you're doing the D-shaped chords, you know, some of that stuff, right? Yeah. Um, I don't know. Cool. Those are just little, th those are little things, little things that I maybe did to a few of Steve's guitars or whatever. Yep. Uh, some of my own guitars. Nice. But no, for I the have... most part, it's math. Yeah, it's math. Because we can't temper a guitar unless you do the true temperament frets yep. where they're all squiggly. Yep. You know, if you're not doing that, then you're going to only be biasing towards a certain uh, key, right? A key signature that you're going to play in. So okay. absent that, we know that guitars just have to be sort of boxed, you know, put the pitches have to be put into boxes and then you as a player have to work within that. Sure, sure. I have one more question for you. And sure. um, you mentioned something about different woods earlier and it's pro it brought to, to memory for me the first time I had you on and we had Remco okay. on. We talked about tone woods and I can't remember who one of you guys was dead on that no that it, that's just rubbish and the other guy was like no it's absolutely right. a thing i forget who was in which camp what was your take on that can you get can you guess <laughs> yeah are you a, are you a yes for, for tone woods no i am a i am a yes and i fully acknowledge that most of what people call experiments out there on the internet are none are nothing like what an experiment is you know you have people who will play a guitar and then saw off half of the body and say see it still sounds the same you know yeah none of that stuff takes into consideration the sound pressure level from the amplifier coming back at you um and they also don't usually play the guitar in such a way as to show you the differences between the sounds in other words they'll pick some very clinical chord progression and they won't have a very active or dynamic right hand and they'll say see this sounds the same as that the ash sounds the same as the mahogany. Yep. But if I took a if I took a swamp ash telecaster and an alder telecaster and I went up near a fender style amplifier that was cranked up, I could play them in such a way that I could show you the differences, right? I could say, see, this one is doing this thing more easily. Or when I play it like this, I get this kind of attack out of it. And when I play that one like that, the same way, I get a different style of attack. Can you tell the difference now? And then usually someone will say, okay, I can hear it. What's inarguable is everybody's going to have a difference of opinion as to how valuable that is. Somebody might say, I don't care. I like, I picked this guitar because it was pretty and it sounds fine to me. And I, I have no qualms about that. I'm not the kind of elitist who's going to be like, you should know that that Spanish cedar is better than the old, you know, Honduran mahogany at this, blah, blah, blah. You know, the African mahogany is different. And, you know, I don't, I don't expect anybody to care to the level that I care. Yeah. But I can show people those differences and those deltas. And some of the differences, I get, if, if it turns into some online argument or something, there's times where I have to say, look, I can't tell you 
some of the stuff that I've done because I'm under contract with different R&D companies where I've done things that have been associated, whether it's with pickups or whatever. I've done things and I can, you know, if somebody wanted to pay me to conduct an experiment and show you and prove to you these things, I can do that. Um, but absent that, uh, you know, this is the internet. I can just tell you I know and I know what I know and I know why I know it. And uh, you can just go on and not believe me if you don't want to. Yeah. But yeah, the main thing is, you know, the strings are attached to the wood on either end. People will say, uh, like the, the, the default arguments are that a pickup hears magnetically, so how can it hear the wood? Well, the string is vibrating on both ends, it's vibrating the wood. And so again, you have this biofeedback loop between the wood, the bridge, and the strings. Yes, it's even true on a Floyd Rose, and we can show that to you. You know, I have ways of showing it to you. Like, it's two knife edges, who cares what the heck? No, there's a difference. Um, and uh, so someday, you know, who knows? Maybe someday, no, you know, no one's gonna pay for this stuff, right? You know, yeah. just for fun, right? Yeah. Um, and, and, and put it out there. But someday, you know, if the time ever came, then I, could, I can kind of show you why I know what I know. Um, but it really does make a difference. And, you know, a good ex explanation is, you know, if I made the guitar from rubber, you'd be able to tell, right? You know, the string, the attack, everything would be different. Sure. Um, to that, people will argue back, well, as long as the wood is kind of hard, it's going to be the same. No, it's not. But if, you know, if something makes a difference, if I, if I, if I expand the deltas, if I show you extreme differences, and that sounds different, then somewhere here there's still a difference it's just whether you care or not that's all. yep yep well i'm, I'm a stratocaster guy and i've mm -hmm. got several strat style guitars and mm -hmm. if i just acoustically go past and go jing 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 on them all i can mm -hmm. hear the difference between an ash strat an older strat basswood strat and all yeah. those things that they talk about man it i hear the difference acoustically that is being picked up through the amp just that the, the right. ash has more of a, a scooped mid sound, like more highs, more lows. The older right. strat just has this thrust in the mid range. Uh, I've got uh, the the basswood one that that's that's a throw together warmth. I'm not not happy with the sound of that. Uh, yeah. My uh, Hamer, which is mahogany. Oh man, yeah. the low end on that. Uh, it's yeah. just and that's got a Floyd Rose, you know. Um, yeah, but still, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. Still it, it's got. Chunk. And they were using great wood back then. You know what I mean? They had they picked good pieces. You knew you were getting something good. So yeah, you know, I mean, you can I can I could make a guitar today out of uh, various types of African mahogany that aren't advantageous for a guitar. You know, they're just like they're decent, but it's not that magic that we're talking about. You know, yeah, that one. yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. So actually, another friend of mine, I'm making him a Spanish cedar guitar with that in mind. There's if you find the right pieces of Spanish cedar. Spanish cedar is not a cedar. It's actually more, it's more of a cousin to mahogany than it is to cedar. Um, but they just call it Spanish cedar, right? It's okay. Like, yeah. yeah. It's like chicken. Yeah. Um, but they, uh, uh, and it smells, it has a really great scent to it. Um, nice. But that's what somebody like, even it's, is it pronounced Rokongas? Um, yep. will use, I believe some of those guys will use that as their substitute for Honduran mahogany, like a real genuine Honduran mahogany. Yeah. Because even Honduran mahogany, we don't get it today. If you buy something that says Honduran mahogany or Honduras mahogany, it's generally grown in the Philippines or somewhere else. It may be the same seed, it may be the same tree style, but different soil, different climate, and it's just a little bit different you know, in the way it performs, but it's not the same. Both, all that stuff is very different from the African mahogany, the Kaya, and you can make great guitars out of that, 
but I just find like I'll I may sort through you know a ton of African mahogany before I find something that I want to use. Sure. Now, acoustic guitar, it's most definitely makes a, a difference, doesn't it? Of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, yeah. You know, there's a, there's a couple of well-known Australian guitar builders over here. I'm thinking uh, Mayton and Cole Clark guitars. And I've got a friend who's got, oh, man, several really nice guitars, Taylors, yeah. Takamini, et cetera, and, and all the Australian ones. If I'm at his place and he picks up one of the Australian guitars, I can hear it mm-hmm. straight away. I just go... That, that that's a, a Cole Clark or a Mayton, isn't it? And he's like, right. yeah, yeah. It just has such a pronounced mid range about it. I'm okay. not sure if that's uh, because of the woods that they use over here. Right. Our woods. Yeah. There's a lot of woods that are native to you guys that, that those builders will use. Um, and so that can be, and is usually, you know, a big part of that. Uh, in the Cole Clark case, they have a very sort of different way of making the guitars. So like they'll put the sides will go into the top and binding is different. And, you know, so they have a sort of a different way of, of, of constructing the guitar to where maybe a Cole Clark that was made with spruce that we found in, in, uh, Northern Italy, you know, and, uh, Brazilian rosewood or, or, or Indian rosewood, you know, that, uh, that a, an American builder would be more prone to use might still sound like a Cole Clark yep. uh, because there's some significant differences in the way they produce the guitar. Yep. But, uh, but you're right. You know, there's, you know, um, Tasmanian blackwood, you know, these things are nice. They're nice woods, but you know, they have a profile. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it, it's like there's, you've got an equalizer set around 1k that's set with a very wide cue and that's just right there. And yeah. for me in a studio, yeah. that's, that's vocal space, man. You know, I like to pull, pull a bit Correct. of that, yeah. bit, of, bit of that yeah. out. Um, so yeah, that's what I'm doing with my acoustics. You know, the Hamholz resonance of my acoustic box, right? With the way I have the bridge and the way I have the bracing, which by the way, for me, I have no bracing behind the bridge at all because I don't oh, really? need it. Yeah. Because I'm not torquing forward. Right? Sure. Sure. Yep. So, the Hemmels, the like the resonance of the box, if you compare it to a comparably built, like a Martin-style bracing version of the same exact guitar, I'm down by about a step or a step and a half. So I have a lower resonance, like a lower subwoofer sort of woofing sound, yep. if everything else were to have been equal, right? And because of that, you know, when you think about a Martin-style guitar, if you're really in the studio, there are, and, you know, and, it, and it's... Engineers will be very quick to to do this, but you're really spending a lot of time shaping that Martin style guitar around 175, uh, 100 hertz, even into 80, 250. You know, you're doing a lot of sculpting, or you're doing creative miking techniques to sort of give you the sound that you want. But there's a lot of stuff that has to be sort of fixed for modern consumption about a Martin style sounding guitar as it records. You know, uh, to to track maybe not in the room maybe not the campfire version of the Martin guitar, but the recorded version, right? And so there's all this stuff that they do. And so my guitars are sort of doing that inherently. That's just, it's been what I've been able to do just by that design. So now my, like I said, my low frequencies are shifted just a little bit lower. My lower resonance kind of gets out of that area where like you say is now piano space or my electric, my Les Paul player is occupying all that 300 and 250 and whatever. And there's all this build up there. Um, I still have information present there, so you can do what you want, but it's, it's just contoured in such a way that sort of lays down in a track a little bit nicer. Yep. Yep. I, I get a few people asking me, oh, yeah, what what acoustic guitar should I bring for the session and blah, blah, blah. And I always say, if you've got a few, bring them because depending on the track, is the track 
just acoustic guitar and vocal? Well, we're going to need right. something that's going to take up the the high and the lows. Uh, that's is, right. Have you got a big dense mix where you've got layered guitars and everything? Well, you want something that's a little bit more boxy that's just going to find its own little space and poke its head out right. out there. And yeah, I actually had a bit of a shootout one time. I had about ten acoustic guitars here, and my friend has this Taylor Koa Taylor. Okay. The low end on that thing. I don't know what the hell's going on there, but it has just got yeah. this whole octave of frequencies down low that wow. just isn't present on any others. And you feel it as soon as you strum it. It's just, oh, that's whoa. great. Yeah, and that's going to be useless for some things, but absolutely perfect that's for right. others. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It depends on, like you said, it depends on what it is. If you listen, even that Jimmy Kimmel broadcast that you listen to. Yep. Um, they use the skinny Godan acoustics, right? Where they're they're just mostly piezo, um, but that was the first night that Billy used the Aura, and you know they're panning that acoustic a little bit more right. You know Steve Stevens' guitar is a little more left, and um, and we got that thing sitting just right there. There's a lot of chime, you know, a lot of strum. Um, but if you listen, it's not that there's a bunch of reverb on it or anything, but there's a liveliness, like there's a 3D depth to that acoustic sound. If I isolated it, would it be the kind of sound you'd want to play a James Taylor, you know, song on? Nope. No, but it's perfect for not just for that mix, but for how boxy those mixes can be for when they when they uh, basically multiband compress them for broadcast. Yeah, it turned out to be, you know, it's great. Um, so we are, yeah, you're right. We're always asking something different, you know, of an acoustic guitar depending on the situation, what where it has to basically get out, you know. Get out of here. You know what I mean? Yep. I'll take you in the treble. I'll take your pick attack. I'll take all that stuff. But, you know, you got to give space to, uh, like I said, to a Les Paul style guitar, you know, a humbucker style guitar, if yep. that's in the mix with you. And piano, natural piano is in that song. Um, so you got to, like I said, you got to create space. And I think they did a great job. You know, great that was mix. not like, our, that wasn't our guys mixing, right? That, that was all Kimmel. Oh, cool. Um, cool. Yeah. And I, yeah, I think it's, it sounded great. Nice, nice. Now, somebody's asked what your favorite strings are. We did talk about your um, your preference and gauges and everything. Did you mention a brand right. along the way? No, I, Diodario has always made good strings. Like I never, I'm, I never have a complaint about a Diodario string. I don't like the NYXLs. They feel tactile. You know, there's, I don't, I don't like how they feel to me. But mm. uh, like a Diodario XL is great. Uh, the string source is making those balance tension strings, and the strings are also very, very good. So it's not just the technique of, of gauge selection. Uh, he makes a good string. Um, and nowadays, you know, we've, we've gotten to the point where a lot of the strings are good, you know, otherwise they just wouldn't be around. Yep. Um, so there's a lot of good stuff. Steve is using Ernie Ball. Um, I feel like the Ernie Ball acoustic and uh, possibly the electrics, like they'll die a little quicker death for me than in like a, a, a Diodario XL. Um, that's insignificant that's irrelevant to to a touring guitarist like steve we're replacing the strings we're not trying to have them break sure you know just yep. someone like me where like you know that you know rose colored strat is probably had the same strings on it for you know over a year you know then it just that becomes something that i care about you know yeah yeah um if you have one or two guitars and you're going to change strings every couple of weeks it's not it's not part of your it's not even in your you know in your thought, thought process sure. at all. Do you have any thoughts on coded strings? I like um, the Dandario versions the best, yep. where they're coding the, the I, and I haven't tried, I'm, I'm gonna rewind this. Yep. I still haven't tried their latest. 
Okay, so so their 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 newest one is supposed to be improved, and I do want to try it. Uh, but Diadario's EXPs were coating the wire before they wrapped it, and that oh. to me felt better. Yep. Uh, so like an elixir or um, you know these strings that have coating all the way across them, then I can't stand them. They feel slippery to me. I lose all tactile sensitivity, so I don't I don't like them. Yep. Uh, but when you make guitars as a brand. Like if I have a guitar that's going to sit in a store hanging on the wall for sale for a month or two, then I, I don't, you don't have a choice. you got to use a coated string because two or three people will put their different acidity on the strings and kill them in the yeah. second. Yeah. And then that guitar on the wall, and people go, oh, that one stinks. I think this other, you know, this guitar is better. And really this might just be that it has new strings, fresh yeah, yeah. strings on it, yeah. or a coated string. So you have, coated strings are something you have to use in life. Um like I said, for retail and things like that. And some yeah. people are very corrosive, so they need them. And that's where I think uh, the the Deardarius have been my favorite. Uh, they sounded the most natural as well. Yeah, right. The Deardarius, when another Australian, um, Adam uh, Miller, would would talk about how when they do finally die, they die a hard death fast. Uh, my theory on there is that if you have a coated wire, and you're raking a wrap with it, yeah. then between the wraps, if you have a micro layer of that coating that begins to break down, then instantaneously it's going to turn into debris between them. And you know, you take the dead strings off, and they feel real slinky, almost like the wraps have become looser. Okay. And so I think that's based on the coating in between them kind of breaking down. Yeah, right. But they're new. That's I'm anxious to try Diodario's new coated uh, string to see if they've modified that process a little bit. I'm going to have to try those. I, I've been using yeah. elixirs for a little while. I'm very fortunate I don't have the acidic sweat like I can normally get. Yeah, I don't either. I can play a set of strings forever. Yeah, yeah. You know, so, just luck of the draw. Yeah, my Hamer over there with the Floyd Rose, uh, I, I love mm -hmm. Floyd Roses because I can put the string back on if it breaks. Uh, and yeah. those strings must be yeah. two and years old does. at least, and, they are, right. and they're like they're brand new. But right. I, yeah, I That's like that. Luck. It's just the luck of the draw. Yeah. yeah. And sometimes it's climate based. Like there have been times when here in Ventura in California, we're near the ocean. Um, so there have been times when we've had a, we've lived in a house that was closer to ocean air. And if you're leaving windows open, things will just be in the air. They'll come in and sort of, you'll find that the strings feel strange, you know, after a while. Yep. Uh, so that can be not, not the fault of the, of your acidity, you know, of, of the player. Yep. But, uh, yeah. Yeah. Frank, thank you so much for your time, man. Yeah, we, no worries. Yeah, time flies. I, I, it, it, it's, wow. Yeah, over two and a half hours. hours. <laughs> over yeah. two and a half hours so far there. And, yeah. Um, yeah, but metric is not, right? It's not as many. <laughs> yes. Yes. And <laughs> you your version. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> man, I want to say thank you. I'll, I'll round things up. Um, folks, if you enjoyed listening to me and, and Frank raving there, little like and a thumbs up and all that kind of thing. Look, I've even got a little button yep. that puts that thing up there, up there. Right yep. On. There it goes. <laughs> Frank can't see that. Bang. There it is. No. But uh, yeah, please like, subscribe, share. You know, got a good thing going over here. Had some amazing guests. Um, it's just a matter of time before people find us. But thank you so much yep. for sticking around. Frank, thank you. I got a little <laughs> round of applause from everybody for you. And uh where can people find you online, mate? Frank uh, uh, Falbo Guitars? Hit, yeah, hit me up on Facebook. Facebook, I'm Falbo Guitars. On Instagram, or Facebook, I'm Falbo Designs because I'll share some other R&D projects I'm working on, like the Fishman stuff or whatever. Uh, Instagram is Falbo Guitars. 
Um, so yeah, find me Falbo Guitars, Falbo Designs. Awesome. Thank you so much, mm -hmm. mate. Time to hit the button and make my cool little icon come up that goes like this.